Welcome back to the Form 89 podcast. This is episode 110. What began on episode 73 back in December 2021 and then continued on episode 89 in December 2022 concludes tonight. So join us as we take the deep breath before the plunge. So, Film 89ers, it's finally time for us to discuss The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, the epic multi-Oscar winning conclusion to Peter Jackson's staggeringly successful big screen adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's epic tome, which, unbelievably, turns 20 this month. Now, this has undoubtedly been one of our listeners' most eagerly awaited episodes, and from a personal point of view, mine too. And joining me tonight... At the end of all things are three stout and hardy folk of varying sizes, two of them that were with me for the previous two installments of this epic podcasting journey. It is, of course, my very good friends, filmmakers, Bill Scurry and Adam Rakoff. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you, Sky. The wrong <laughs> son died. <laughs> and the third co-host joining me tonight was once unfairly, but still, I think, quite accurately described on our Two Towers episode as a skulking gangrel creature with an ill-favoured look. (laughs) (laughs) He's here to steal our precious away from us at the final stage of our journey, and he was with me last year discussing a far less successful Tolkien adaptation, Amazon's The Rings of Power, and thankfully he's here tonight to discuss an infinitely better Tolkien adaptation. It is, of course, my very good friend and frequent Film 89 co-host, Mr. John Arminio. John, thank you for joining us tonight. The Faramir to Rich's Fallen Boromir, if you will. (laughs) Uh, uh, Out of the tunnel of shadows, I come to vomit forth darkness. I look forward to it. Now, John, obviously, myself, Bill, and Adam have discussed 
the first two films in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy on the previous two episodes. But just to sort of get you and our listeners up to speed with your own personal journey of the films and experience with them, um, do you just want to uh, go through your kind of feelings about The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers, which obviously you weren't on the previous two episodes to talk about? Yeah, so I definitely saw these in the theater, you know, when I was like 18, 19. I had mixed feelings about them when they came out, and I soured on them for a bit, I think, because I'm a bit of a a Tolkien acolyte, and I took some issues with some of the characterizations. But after a while, I got to thinking, like, wait, the casting is perfect, music is amazing, all the effects look amazing, what is my problem? (laughs) Um, And then I reevaluated them, and I'm like, no, these movies are absolutely amazing anyone who knows me it's no shocker like i'm a huge metalhead, and you know metal bands are, are as obsessed with um these books as i am and so it, it's sort of like um a perpetual motion machine of tolkien enthusiasm the more i watch these movies the more i want to read the books the more i read the books the more i want to listen to these heavy metal bands that sing about it the more i listen to bands like summoning or Numenor, the more I want to go back to the book. So it's just a really rewarding cycle and, and a way for me to return to the world of Middle-earth. In terms of the first two films then, John, obviously myself, Bill, Adam, you know, Craig, we talked to them for the best part of three hours per episode about them. How do you feel about the first two films as part of the trilogy as a whole? And I think Fellowship is my favorite of the three because I just like the nine together. I think the introduction of the world is so magical you get, you know, a lot of Gladriel, um, and it's always wonderful to see Kate Blanchett on screen as that character. And, um, you know, Helm's Deep is one of the greatest battle scenes ever captured on film. Um, Christopher Lee is absolutely perfect as, as Sauron. And so, yeah, I, I just think that those first two are absolute home runs. And I, I believe that the extended editions are the definitive editions of these films. Uh, and so that's kind of the only way I watch all three of them at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John, I, I agree with you. I, I know you probably listened to the, mm-hmm. the fellowship episode, but I've always had a soft spot for the fellowship of the ring. It just not that I dislike any of the other, they're all amazing, but there's just something about that whole fellowship being together in that first movie going, starting the quest, you know, starting yeah. the journey. And, and I think we all love Frodo and Sam and the further we get into this journey, the more miserable they are. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, it it's honestly kind of hard seeing Frodo suffer so much. And then I know that's like the point, but it's so like heartwarming to see those hobbits go bright eyed and enthusiastic into this journey into the unknown. Whereas at the, at the end of all things with Frodo with one finger bitten off and ready to die, it's a little dour. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's such a journey, isn't it? You know, the way that the characters are introduced and the way they progress over the course of, you know, if you're watching the extended versions, which we've discussed in all these episodes, 11 hours and 20 minutes, I think, uh, is, is the complete running time of the extended versions. And yeah, you know, it, it is just, uh, you know, a roller coaster of emotions and character progression. And yeah, it's, you know, as, as we've said in the previous two episodes, the, the logistics of how these films are put together is simply baffling. But yeah, thanks, John, for sort of pulling us up to speed there with how you feel about you know the, the first two films and Bill and Adam here we are at last two and a half years after this huge podcasting adventure began has this time both flown by and also seemed like an age for you as it has for me 
it sure has for me. It's 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 take it's been a long time for me. I, I a lot has changed in my life over the course of the last year. I've moved out of New York City after 20 years, more than 20 years living there, and I'm now in Connecticut. And that, that's you know it's a huge life change. So uh, I'm recording for the first time my first podcast from my new Hobbit hole. Oh well, it, we're on it. Indeed, I'm underground right now. <laughs> So fortunately, having done the bulk of the legwork around the inception and production of these films on the Fellowship of the Ring episode, like we did in the Two Towers episode, we can, I guess, just dive headlong into the film itself. Now, just to clarify, the version of the film that we'll mostly be referring to is the extended edition, or the complete edition, Adam, as you called it on one of the previous two episodes. Exactly. (laughs) Obviously, we talked about that incredible seven plus minutes opening to the first film being so important to set up the sort of law of the ring that the you know brief rundown of the history of middle earth all the races and 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 sauron why he constructed this sort of ring to rule over middle earth and then peter jackson by means of a way to top that with the opening to the two towers just had this incredible flashback to a moment partway through the first film which was incredibly important to the story and just showing us a different point of view of something that at the time may or may not have happened or may have just been, you know, a Frodo's sort of nightmarish fever dream. But like I said, one of my all-time favorite openings to a film. But the opening scene here, the flashback telling of how Smeagol came into possession of the ring was directed by Fran Walsh, Peter Jackson's partner. And we see Andy Serkis in the flash finally with fairly minimal makeup way back in pre-production when they were going to have initially a different actor to play Smeagol and just have Circus do the voice. But fortunately, Peter Jackson later realised that the sensible choice would be to have Circus playing the character. Now, this scene was originally going to be in the Two Towers in the Dead Marshes segment, but they decided not to put it in the extended cut of the Two Towers and left it over to be the opening of Return of the King instead. And after you know those openings of the first two films, for me, it kind of makes for a different kind of opening, totally different pace, different sense of atmosphere, but one that I think we really benefit from seeing as an audience, having become accustomed to Gollum as we know him from the Two Towers. And the MPAA, they made Jackson uh, cut a brief shot of Smeagol strangling his cousin Deagle, which they made that cut for the theatrical cut, but fortunately, it's been restored here in the extended edition. And then we see the gradual deterioration of Smeagol as the ring takes hold of him over, I don't know, is it decades or centuries? What do you think of that opening? I think it's, uh, it's, it is a wonderful opening, and it actually shows you a little bit of the proof of concept because Circus is wearing a lot of prosthetics before they do this really amazing um, fade shift from the uh, actual on-set Andy Circus and makeup by use of the eyes. Essentially, it, com- it then the composite CGI Gollum gets overlaid in a very smooth way, and you see where it transfers from flesh with makeup to what we know, this um, you know uh, advancement in CGI imagery, creating this character that we're just we've been you know absolutely enamored with since he was introduced at the end of Fellowship, or at least in bits and pieces of Fellowship, but properly in uh, the two to- uh, the two towers. But the thing is, is that having this as the opening of the movie, it's really sagacious because every time I watch Return of the Kings. Um, it it um, hammers into this fact that we're watching an arc of 
Gollum play this trick, this masquerade that that goes for the entire movie, even though we don't see, you know, this this skips it like this, like a stone on top of a pond. We visit them uh, here on, you know, uh, on and off. But essentially, the the game of um, Smeagol uh, trying to pull a fast one over uh, by convincing Frodo that he is in fact Smeagol. He's not. He's not Gollum. And then he goes back and looks over his shoulder and he gives Sam a really you know grim and and, and sneaky little you know evil grin, saying that I'm going to beat I'm going to beat you at the end. Like I'm the one who's going to win this this tilt. And so you know having him strangle his brother and then go through this change, you see the fact that there are two poles fighting against one another. But they you know and that's the great thing. It, it harkens back to the two towers where they broke Gollum's heart by setting him up to be captured by Faramir. And it's like any hope they had of possibly reclaiming what was human, the Smeagol part of Gollum was gone when he's roped at the, you know, they almost kill him with arrows in that in that, in that that cold lake sequence. So it sort of just sets up this um, battle of wills that, you know, it's played out until they get to Mount Doom at the end. Yeah, we mentioned building me at, uh, there was that turning point, wasn't it, in the two towers where Smeagol now was, he, he'd kind of been pretty much hard done by and, and almost felt betrayed by by Frodo and there's like this sort of delineation between this you know if there is a psychological boundary between the Gollum and Smeagol personalities it seems to either dissolve somewhat in this film or just I think the Smeagol side of the character just starts to really kind of come to the fore and, and show that he actually is just as villainous or more so than Gollum. Yeah Gollum says to Smeagol in that, in that, you know, when he's looking at his own reflection, he says, I've saved us. I've kept us alive. I'm the one whose cunning and guile has gotten us this far. And it's like, you know, your kind heart is essentially a weakness. It's a liability. So you got to trust me and my evil plan to get us through or else we're going to get fucked again. Yeah. And then after the opening, we cut to Sam and Frodo sleeping in the culvert. And some of these close-up shots, they were filmed four years apart from the wider two shots, which were filmed as pickups. And again, there's so much of this about this trilogy where they're years separating some of the different shots in the scene. It just completely blows my mind because you just wouldn't tell. Yeah, I think yeah, it's, it's a remarkable accomplishment in just sheer organizing. Yeah. With the ability to know, all right, in four years, we're going to be able to pick up this shot. Or, you know, four years later, looking back at the footage that you, that you did, oh, we need this angle and this angle that and we're able to then edit everything together to make it and make it look perfect and for the actors to put themselves in a place that they think they might be at in three years time or four years time it's just absolutely uh, astonishing you know like we've examined these films enough that we know that now but you would never be able to tell just by watching these films yeah and you know after the flashback it really cuts to sam which kind of further supports something we've talked about in the other episodes that this third film is kind of Sam's film. He's kind of in ways the character we relate to the most and kind of fought. I mean, we all wish we, we were Aragorn, but <laughs> I think Sam is kind of the, the person that we, we look at and say, yeah, that's probably how I would be <laughs> in this he's kind, situation. He's kind of the con, he's the conscience of the film, Adam. If you yeah, think yeah. About it that way. yeah. And, uh, and yeah, we do follow him. We, we first see him and we, he's the last character we see at the end of the film too, which is sort of a script writing rule that your main character is the first one you see. And the last one you see, you know, if you take out the, the prologue seat flashback sequence. So yeah, it's just, it's really, it, it, I rewatched it this time, really looking at Sean Astin and his performance and and really, I think, 
pulled a lot more out. He really becomes the hero in this film, the unlikely hero. There are a lot of other characters that are already very heroic and they do what you assume they're going to do. But he's the one that kind of, I think, if it wasn't for him, this film would end <laughs> very differently. This story. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure we already touched on this in previous episodes. I don't think we could help ourselves when we were talking about the quality of the acting from some of the cast. But, yeah, you know... There are times where I, I, I was just like in awe of Sean Astin's performance in this film. It's just like you say, Adam. Yeah, there, there, there are you know there are ways of looking. Certainly looking at this as being, you know, Sam being the the, the sort of most important, or maybe the MVP of this film. Right, right. It's certainly an ensemble, no question. There's so many important characters, but in many ways, he's the one that changes the most throughout this film. If you think about it, he kind of has to find that strength in himself to help Frodo and to help really get this ring destroyed. Yeah. And, and yeah. You know, we have to believe that Sam, you know, loves Frodo so much that he's willing to take this journey with him, even when it's accompanied by the foul creature that is Gollum. He, you know, he's willing to endure months and months of pain and the company of a liar and a murderer just to help Frodo with his with his burden. And we believe that in Sean Astin's performance without him having to tell us or Frodo. And yeah, a absolutely. And I think it's a, a real accomplishment in a movie called The Return of the King, where the titular character isn't the main character. Yeah. And also, I think in this one last thought in this opening, where they're eating their, their Lembus bread, you know, there's a moment where you can really tell on, it's unspoken that Sam realizes they're not going to necessarily be going back. They, there's no, there's, there's not going to be enough food or water. Frodo obviously is just trying to get by each and every day, just to kind of carry that burden. But Sam is looking at it more from a practical standpoint, and he's he's already sensing that there might not be a return trip. Yeah, and then after um, you know when we leave Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. We're back with Gandalf and Co. as they arrive at the now ruined and flooded Isengard, and we have the film's title appear on screen. They are then reunited with Merry and Pippin, who are still gorging on the goodies that they found in Saruman's stores. And then we have, in the extended edition, the final confrontation with Saruman. You have fought many wars and slain many men, Theoden King, and made peace afterwards. Can we not take counsel together as we once did, my old friend? Can we not have peace, you and I? We shall have peace. We shall have peace when you answer for the burning of the Westfold and the children that lie dead there. We shall have peace when the lives of the soldiers whose bodies were hewn even as they lay dead against the gates of the Hornburg, are avenged! When you hang from a gibbet for the sport of your own crows, we shall have peace. Gibbets and crows! Don't! What do you want, Gandalf Greyhaim? Let me guess. The key of Orthanc, or perhaps the keys of Barad-dûr itself, along with the crowns of the Seven Kings and the rods of the Five Wizards! Your treachery has already cost many lives. Thousands more are now at risk. But you could save them, Saruman. You were deep in the enemy's council. 
So you have come here for information? I have some for you. Something festers in the heart of Middle-earth. Something that you have failed to see. But the Great Eye has seen it. Even now, he presses his advantage. His attack will come soon. You're all going to die. But you know this, don't you, Gandalf? You cannot think that this ranger will ever sit upon the throne of Gondor. This exile, crept from the shadows, will never be crowned king. Gandalf does not hesitate to sacrifice those closest to him. Those he professes to love. Tell me, what words of comfort did you give the halfling before you sent him to his doom? The path that you have set him on can only lead to death. I've heard enough! Shoot him! Stick an arrow in his gob! So, a cause of some minor controversy at the time, this scene was cut right down in the theatrical version. Saruman's appearance, and as it turns out, his death was pretty much cut out. Christopher Lee was obviously pretty miffed, and he called Jackson out on his decision, and I, I have to agree. His character deserved a proper conclusion to his arc, and of course, more Saruman and more Christopher Lee is always better. One thing though, I don't like that Grima is killed and the fact that Legolas saw to kill him. I'd, I'd have liked to have seen him being spared and, and seen some sort of just brief redemption here. And oh, Brad Dorif, man. There's always that little bit of me that thinks, oh, I know he did what he did, but... As we know, he was under the influence of Saruman. He was gradually twisted over who knows how many years. I just, I don't know. It always it stings a little bit when he gets taken out. Well, I love when um, he says, uh, you were once a man of Rohan, you know, as if to say there was decency. You're, you're, you once had eyebrows. Your skin looked like the color of, uh, you know, you had some melanin. You weren't this completely desiccated creature. I like <laughs> to think that even him pulling the knife out of his vestment and going at, um, you know, that, that was... The last act of a desperate man, a broken man, is like just lashing out at this guy who fucked his entire life up. I mean, he it doesn't end well for him, but at least, you know, you, you buy, you know, Brad Dourif drops like a real thick tear. That man could cry on command. Mm. And it's like his, his, his yielding or his sort of conquest, his soul being broken is so total and complete that he has nothing left to do other than drive a dagger into this into this wizard's back. And it's like, I made, you know, like, what could I do? I can't save my soul. All I can do is watch you bleed as you sort of tumble down onto a yard arm somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and it, there was additional dialogue, which they cut out, which was kind of like, you made me do it. You know, it, him just kind of cursing Saruman for what he turned him into. But, you know, Jackson just kind of, and, and I understand why we're talking about a four and a half hour film. It, it You've got to be judicious with your editing, but I don't know. It's just that the way he goes out, it just it did sting. I guess for me, it being left out in the theatrical version um, makes sense. Um, like I, I obviously prefer um, we us getting to see Saruman again, but I think because I know the book so well, well, I, I'm fully cognizant they're not going to include the scouring of the Shire, which is where Saruman ends up at the very end of the of the books. 
So it seemed like, you know, if we have to get this thing down to under three and a half hours, all your cuts are going to be painful. And I think especially at, at the beginning when we need to get into the story, I think it makes sense. But I obviously sympathize with Christopher Lee for having his death scene cut out. Yeah. And, you know, like you say, John, Saruman's death is much different to how it was in the book, famously. <laughs> I love this little uh, anecdote. When Peter Jackson was explaining to Christopher Lee how he wanted him to react when Grimus stabbed him in the back, he replied, Peter, have you ever heard the sound a man makes when he's stabbed in the back? Well, I have. I know what to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lee, obviously having been a commander in World War II, was at the time still bound by the Official Secrets Act and couldn't really go into any more detail about it than that. But I, I love that little anecdote. And Peter Jackson's told that so many times. And he's, he's killed three times, isn't he? Because there's this uh, thing that's mentioned that you, a wizard needs to be killed three times. He's stabbed in the back, he's impaled on a spike, and then he's drowned. That's true. Yep. Pippin finds then and, and picks up the Palantir. Gandalf quickly takes it away from him, and then they all return to Adoras. They have a banquet, and then we have the drinking competition between Gimli and Legolas. Was that in the theatrical cut, or was that extended edition footage? You know, I'm not sure, because I've only watched the extended edition since... I saw this in the theater, so it's getting mm. getting harder and harder to remember what was originally yeah. seen in the theater. And then Theoden's self-doubt was hinted at, and Gimli's line about little hairy women was an ad-lib by John Rhys-Davis and was a, an homage to Quint in Jaws. Mm. We later see then that Pippin is distracted, having had contact with the Palantir and Gandalf and Aragorn speak about Frodo and Sam, and then we cut to them, both sleeping. And we have the sister scene to the Gollum Smeagol scene that we talked about in the Two Towers. But this one, and this blows my mind, this was actually filmed first with Gollum being the reflection in the water. And in terms of the CGI, this is an improvement over the similar scene in the Two Towers, which was already nigh on perfect. Sam then wakes up and then he hears the tail end of the conversation and then he whacks Smeagol or Gollum over the head with a pot, only for Frodo to jump to his defence. It's at this point that we now see hints of this true villainy of Smeagol, as opposed to him being the sort of bullied sort of victim to the Gollum side of the split personalities. And I just love the way this is this sort of amped up throughout this film. And then back in Edoras, that, that dream that um, Eowyn speaks of, and I'm pretty sure this was in the extended edition only, wasn't it? The, the, the Eowyn dream. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Now that was a real dream that to Tolkien had had before he wrote the books. And that gave him the idea of the destruction of Numenor, this giant wave that destroys the city but in the books the dream was that of Faramir's and then you've got that little moment outside at night between Lagolas and Aragorn outside in Edoras that was filmed with both actors separately filmed months apart so when they look at each other they're just looking at markers on a wall and it's again like it's only when it gets pointed out you think oh yeah it, it does maybe look as if they're not actually in the same frame together but you know again if I'd never been told that I wouldn't have worked out myself and I think yeah, the atmosphere of the scene where, you know, Legolas is saying, you know, the stars are veiled, a sleepless malice, the, the enemy has awoken. And like it, it's such a otherworldly mood that it's almost appropriate that the actors weren't in the same room when they were filming that. Yeah, yeah. 
Pippin takes a Palantir from a sleeping Gandalf, sleeping of course with his eyes open, and against the protests of Merry, he looks into it and he has something of a confrontation with Sauron. Gandalf then tries to persuade Theoden to go to Gondor's aid after Pippin tells him what he saw in the Palantir, but Theoden is having none of it, so Gandalf and Pippin leave for Minas Tirith, and for the first time in the story, Merry and Pippin are separated. By the way, footnote, the uh, the only other character I remember sleeping with their eyes open was uh, Anne Ramsey and Throw Mama from the Train. Uh, <laughs> when, when uh, uh, what is it, Billy Crystal's uh, going to kill her with a steel pan or something like that. So, but just just decided to point that out. Of course, she's, uh, she's Martha Telly from the Goonies, isn't she? That's true, yes. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's yeah. it. Yeah. And we then see a caravan of elves making their way from Rivendell. And in an earlier cut, there was a scene between Legolas and Treebeard at Isengard talking about the elves leaving Middle-earth. But when the scenes were moved around in the eventual edit, that scene, which had been shot, was cut. Arwen then sees a vision of the future and an older Aragorn and their son. And this is, of course, her impetus to remain in Middle-earth and go back to her father, Elrond, and confront him about the fact that he knew that there would be a child. Now, some of these scenes were originally to have been in the two towers but the insertion here i think certainly makes more sense in terms of the story being told in this film elrond then sees that arwen's strength is waning after she gave something of her essence to save frodo in the first film elrond then decides to have narsil the sword which Isildur used to cut the ring from sauron's hand reforged and then Gandalf and Pippin arrive at the city of Minas Tirith, the heart of Gondor, and this sequence of him riding Shadowfax through the streets of the city and up the various levels is just phenomenal. And another perfect showcase of the amazing blend of models, sets, and CGI effects. Now, Adam, you know, yeah. I know you've got a good eye for a good special effect. And <laughs> on my recent rewatch of this, and obviously you've watched this in 4K on like a 65-inch screen, how good is that model of Minas Tirith? Obviously, coupled with actual real full-size sets and, and CG, I just can't see the scenes. Oh, it's it's it's. this is one of my favorite scenes, honestly, of the entire film. Every time I watch it, I am just in awe of the detail that this is a fully functional, you know, fortress that they've they've designed. You know, you can see every window, every catapult, every every balcony, all the little CG people moving around. It's just there's there's a real function to the entire design of this fortress and I was I found myself this time watching on a really large screen just pausing it and just kind of looking at the details and just thinking about how much time it must have taken not only to design this but to to make every little you know there's a little bit, there's smoke coming out of little you know windows and corners like there's just so much going on it's also just such an important sequence to see how Gandalf rides up to the top, it really helps to set the stage later on when they're, you know, being attacked to understand kind of, it's kind of like that opening shot of Titanic where they show the CGI version of the ship sinking so that the audience kind of understands, oh, this is what's going to happen. So now we have a full understanding of the height and the different levels of this massive fortress and kind of how at the very top we have the tree, of course, and and it's just yeah. It's you can take this this whole sequence out and just watch it on its own <laughs> over and over again. Was this yeah. how it was described in the book, is or is this a, a sort of an insuage generous invention of the city itself? Um, it it is very faithful to uh, the way it is in the book. The only difference is that the outer wall in the book is made out of the same stone as the Tower of Orthanc, so it's black. But just for you know sheer aesthetics, they decided to keep it all uniform. 
And I just have to credit concept artists Alan Lee and John Howe. And I think the fact that this movie got such brilliant concept artists to get everything, you know, set from the beginning and to keep that quality level that high throughout the entire production process shows how much forethought was put into these films, but how much care and thought went into every aspect of it. And I think because we got that detail from the beginning, the the fruit of that is how spectacular Minas Tirith, Minas Tirith looks right now. Yeah, I think what it what it does so well is it shows us the difference in size and scale to the the sort of nearest comparable structure which we've seen previously being Helm's Deep, and the fact that this is just so many more times bigger. I tell you yeah. what, it makes me think of is that every day you stand, it's every day is leg day at Ministerium. Uh, <laughs> there's well, a shitload of stairs and ladders. That's a very good point. Yeah. That yeah. I kept thinking about how throughout the throughout the battle, you know, Gandalf and 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 they're you know they're going up and down, up and down. I'm thinking, wow, they're really. <laughs> They're really getting the work out here. All those Knights of Gondor have huge calves and glutes. <laughs> so Gandalf and Pippin, then they meet a grieving Denethor, and he's holding the Horn of Gondor, now cleaved in two, which we last saw Boromir using at the Battle of Amonhen at the end of the first film. And there's a great little flashback inserted of Boromir getting shot full of arrows, just reminding us of his sacrifice at the end of film one. And then Gandalf speaks the film's title, as it was done in the first two films, when he says, authority is not given to you to deny the return of a king, steward. <laughs> and then there's an extended scene where Gandalf explains the, I don't know, I guess it's the, the politics of Gondor to Pippin and Denethor's role as the steward and the state that Gondor is now in under his rule. And again, there's more incredible shots of the city in the scene. It's just epic and Pippin, gets his first glimpse of Mordor as they see the, the broil of smoke and fume that is slowly making its way towards Gondor. And then we're back to Frodo, Sam and Gollum and another scene directed by Fran Walsh as part of the pickups and Frodo says to Sam that he doesn't think they'll be coming back which is just a nice little mirror to the scene in the cornfield in the first film where Sam is saying if I take another step it's the furthest I've ever been away from the Shire. Yeah. And then the next scene with them in the extended cut when that was being filmed Sir Edmund Hillary made a visit to the set. And I just love this scene, the one with the, the statue of the king, which his head has been lopped off and replaced with with a stone. And the crown of flowers that lights up when that brief mm -hmm. bit of sunlight hits it. It's just such a nice little scene. And I just can't imagine like little scenes like this not being in the film. So like you say, Adam, for me, this is just like you know the, the complete edition. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think um this is such this is why I think these books and the, these stories have such resonance, you know, throughout the decades. And that was very conscious by Tolkien is that he even himself had reservations about filling out the world in things like the Children of Hurin or, or the Silmarillion because he liked the mystery of moments like this and he described it like seeing an ancient city through a mist and that all you can see is like the outline of the, the skyline. And so when Sam and Frodo encounter these thousands of year old statues, we can see that mystery through them as, as readers or as film watchers. And I think the, those elements are essential to the experience of Middle Earth, whether it's in the book or the film. Yeah, and we're also venturing into like an abandoned part of what used to be, you know, the the, the sort of um, outskirts of the Kingdom of Gondor and the fact mm -hmm. that, you know, the Gondorians have been pushed back by, you know, the the, the, the horde of, 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 of Sauron. And you really just do get that impression, this little scene. It, it just, I don't know, it, it's just... It adds to the history, you know, it makes yeah, you realize yeah, there's yeah. a lot more here than even 
that the characters know or that we as the audience know. There's just such a great, rich history of uh, that makes the, this world feel that much richer. There's 10,000 years worth of fallen glory to, yeah, <laughs> to mine exactly. through. No, I, I couldn't put it better myself, Adam. It just enriches the, the, the feeling of, of um, just, I don't know, this world just being real and lived in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. World, it's true world building. That's what Tolkien yeah. was was someone that uh, I don't think anyone will ever surpass in yeah. <laughs> in doing that. And then it's nighttime at Minas Tirith, and Pippin is looking at his new suit of ceremonial armor and weapons as Gandalf looks over to Mordor. There's no more stars. Is it time? Yes. So quiet. It's the deep breath before the plunge. I don't want to be in a battle. But waiting on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. Is there any hope, Gandalf, for Frodo and Sam? There never was much hope. Just a fool's hope. Our enemy is ready. His full strength gathered. Not only orcs, men as well. Legions of Haradrim from the south. Mercenaries from the coast. All will answer Mordor's call. This will be the end of Gondor as we know it. Here the hammer stroke will fall hardest. If the river is taken, if the garrison at Osgiliath falls, the last defense of this city will be gone. But we have the White Wizard. That's got to count for something. One, they say, no living man can kill. The Witch King of Agmar. You've met him before. He stabbed Frodo on Weathertop. He is the Lord of the Nazgul, the greatest of the nine. Minas Morgul is his land. And then it's here where Gandalf tells Pippin of the forces the Sauron is amassing, including the Witch King of Angmar, leader of the Nazgul, and we see him suited up in Minas Morgul. It's kind of like this film's version of the uh, beach tooling up scene from Commando. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we then cut to Sam, Frodo, and Smeagol as they approach Minas Morgul. And oh my god, guys, I just, you know, if I love Minas Tirith, then Jesus Christ, I just love the design of this once great city, which was a sister city to Minas Tirith, that's now been just corrupted by evil, all glowing green. And you could just imagine it's got like this glowing algae on it. This is like yeah. five solid minutes of black metal album cover. And I love it. 
Yeah, but it also looks like the world's best, um, like, Art Deco, you know, design building, like, perfect architectural conceit of those those angles and the, and the soaring fins. And, I mean, it's just, it's. I know it fits in with the architecture of everything else you've seen in this movie. But, I mean, that, that sickly green glow makes it magic. It, I mean, there's, there's an appeal to it because it is so slick. It is so modern. It looks like something Buckminster Fuller would have lived inside of. And I think the, the the symmetry of you know the between that architecture is so perfect because it's just warped enough for us to feel how perverse it has become now that the Witch King of Angmar has taken residence. And it feels like it's from the same world, and that makes it even scarier to see how it's descended. But I also love the coded, you know, the coded differences between the, um, I guess you'd call it farmhouse chic of Rohan, where everything is essentially yeah. like thatched buildings and wood and almost looks like um, Viking longhouses and that sort of thing, where you see the actual timber that it's hewn from. And that makes sense, considering that there aren't any trees within 10,000 miles of Rohan. Who the hell knows where they got the building materials for that? But then, you know, like the, the, elves, them, the elves themselves, when you go to... Um, uh, you know, the elder cities, the two elder cities, it's like they have their own aesthetic that ba- it's based on people living inside and outside at the same time. There's just leaves everywhere and it's braided wood and almost like it grows out of the earth. And then, you know, the human cities have a different look, too, where it's like they were clearly created in the same epoch by the same, you know, the same quarrymen. It's the same, you know, blonde stone. It's the same architectural thing. I mean, not that. Anybody who you know who does this sort of a previs and this this industrial design for these movies, they're supposed to take these things into account. But the fact that the codes are so large in these movies, you know, the fact that Orthanc looks the way it does in relation to uh, Barador, you know, those are those are great unspoken things. That's storytelling just through a you know an expository reveal just by a wide shot does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of the history. Oh God, yeah, Bill, and like you say, you know. Rohan is all rustic and thatch roofs and medieval buildings, and Orthanc is just like as if it's one piece of obsidian just somehow being carved down into this huge tower. And and, and this place, Minas Morgul, I don't know, it, it it's like as if it came out of 1959's Sleeping Beauty. I, I just think <laughs> of it, you know, with all of those dark colours and that glowing green. Or a Fritz, a Fritz Lang movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and that spire of like swirling green light that explodes up into the sky and the way that the sound is almost sucked out of the film for a second before it erupts. It, it, you know, it's incredible visuals, it's, it's incredible sound design. And then that image of the Witch King riding a fell beast that, and, and, and like the way that the, the giant wings wrap around the, the towers and you just get this feeling of it just being real and fleshy and, and yeah, it, it's just incredible. And, and all seen through through us, Sam and Frodo, yeah. watching. You know, we're seeing it. It's great that we didn't get any preview of this. They could have easily have shown some of this earlier in a cutaway scene or something. But because we're following Sam and Frodo, we're getting to sort of witness it for the first time through don't, their eyes. Don't, don't we and, see in the first one, don't we, very briefly when um, Gandalf says, or, or, or Simon says to Gandalf that the nine have left uh, Minas Morgul and then we see a brief shot of, of the of the nine ring wraiths on horses leaving and and they're leaving Minas Morgul but obviously we only see it in a close-up shot of kind through of the like gate the, yeah through the, the, the main gate yeah yeah right right this definitely has a much kind of wider scope to it now we're getting to see all that kind of as you said that kind of bioluminescence 
<laughs> that yeah, seems it, to be emerging. Yeah, it's just one of the best locations in the entire trilogy for me. I just love it. And then Smeagol leads Frodo and Sam up the steep stairway that leads to Cerithangol, and of course, to her, the her that we heard mentioned at the end of the Two Towers. Having now realised that shit is about to get real, Gandalf takes matters into his own hands. But before we see his plan play out, we see Faramir at Osgiliath and the Orc army led by the deformed and disfigured Gothmog arrive via the river and attack them. Gandalf then gets Pippin to help put his plan into motion and we have what is certainly for me one of the most awe-inspiring sequences in the entire trilogy, the lighting of the beacons where Howard Shaw's score arguably reaches its peak. will answer. Muster the Rohirrim. Assemble the army at Dunham. As many men as can be found. You have two days. On the third, 
We ride for Gondor and war. What a home run with Howard Shore. Like, if you look at his filmography, he had a lot of excellent movies. But, you know, he specialized in thrillers and, you know, David Cronenberg movies. And he worked with David Fincher a couple of times. He did the great score for After Hours. But the insight that Peter Jackson had, like, oh, this is the guy to make the sound of, of Middle Earth come to life and, and to carry our emotions throughout the, the 11 hours of this of the saga, I just think is one of the greatest decisions a director has ever made. Like, he, he came a long way from being the music director of Saturday Night Live at the very beginning, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was, yeah. And I yeah. don't know, on those previous two episodes, guys, have we given enough credit to and mention of Howard Shaw's score? Because, you know, I, I've mentioned it before, we've done several episodes of this podcast which have been dedicated to film scores. We've done episodes on Jerry Goldsmith. We've done episodes on our favorite horror film scores. And on that episode I did with Stephen Simpson last year, we talked quite a bit about Howard Shaw's score, about his score for The Fly and how... There's little bits of that score that I could hear, bits of his Lord of the Rings score, but how in so many of his Cronenberg scores, I just I, I, I can't put him with this same composer that made this just incredible score. And it is, without doubt for me, one of the all-time great movie scores. And I, I've got to say, in, in the form of the complete recordings, which are you know the, the complete musical scores that Howard Shaw released on CD back in the early 2000s for each of the three films, it's the film score that I think I've listened to the most. And if you're going to put a gun to my head and say what well, my favourite film score is, I don't think I'm going to be able to pick any other film score than these scores for this trilogy because they are just absolute perfection. Just for me personally, I think it was like the horns that went off in the two towers, you know, during the forging of the Urukai. I'm just like, wait, this is fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. What's my problem? So, like, it was the, the power of his music that made me reevaluate these movies. Well, you know, and, like, like, like Williams before him, I think Williams is the best comp. Um, Jerry Goldsmith did this too, but Williams, it's like we're playing around in Williams' sandbox, is that Shore did something for this movie that people don't do. And now they did it in the epoch in which this movie was created, but people don't really do this anymore. They're not asked to do this, and the soundtracks to movies aren't asked to create motifs and themes and under, you know, underscores that go throughout the movie, picking up different characters, different sides, different moods. Uh, film scoring is a much different business today than it was back in the old days. In the old days, again, just being 25 years ago, Shore had a completely different set of tasks set before him, and the influences he was pulling on were some of the greatest in the history of, of music. So not only was he pulling back on guys like Williams, he was also going back to guys like Korngold yeah. in the 30s and 40s and stuff like that. But you know, the, the, we think of this stuff now, it, it's even more stunning just because the lack of pageantry, the lack of wizardry, the lack of adroitness in the way music, and it's not, again, it's not necessarily uh, a diminution of skill in anybody who makes music. It has to do with what they're asked to do with new music motifs today and the sort of action vocabulary, which just clearly is not the same language as it was back uh, 25 years ago for this. And Shore arranged and conducted all 10 hours of music in, in this movie, whereas so many modern composers just write the score and leave the, the arranging and conducting to other people. Hell, Elfman, Elfman came and read music. Elfman was, is a great composer, but it, that, that stuff was always a crew of assistants yeah. um, and sidekicks who would do all the rest of the heavy lifting. Yeah, and, and John, you and I talked about um, Eric Wolfgang Kongel's score for The Adventures of Robin Hood on the episode we did 
I think back in February. But the shore score is not just swashbuckling. It's it's something else. It's eerie. It's it's horror. It's fantasy. It's just everything. And this lightning of the beacon sequence. It feels almost ancient. You know, it yeah. feels like it belongs in a time long past. And that's a, tr- a tricky thing to to do when you're creating like a modern epic adventure movie. Yeah, like even Basil Polidorus's like flawless score for Conan the Barbarian is it, it feels ancient, it feels right. it's perfect for that film and for that sort of prehistory sort of time period, be it fictional, fantasy or whatever. But he he did he doesn't have to score like Bilbo's party. No. As well as a battle scene. <laughs> the, 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 right. This is all of those things, but this is just got so much more range to it and yep. yeah and and you know the lighting of the beacon sequence i i just if, if you're gonna want me to pick an example of one of the most awe-inspiring rousing uplifting pieces of music in a film then you know this has got to be up there it's just incredible and then, oh, aside yeah, from the actual beacons and the flames that we're seeing all of those incredible shots of mountains that we see were shot for real from helicopters it's amazing it's this is a close second for me i, I mentioned i really love gandalf's ride up Minas Tirith. this is right up there right next to it in terms of just one of my favorite sequences it's such an ingenious idea you don't even think about it it's like you're basically calling for help at the speed of light but it does of course require i I was thinking about this two-man teams to be manning every station 24 hours a day seven days a week (laughs) you know for a a thousand years yeah for a thousand years just in case you need to call for help yeah at the point Uh, where you break down the logistics of these beacons it completely falls apart yeah, yeah. You can have entire yeah. generations of families going to be like staffing these beacons, and it's going to be like, yeah, I, I did it for sixty years, nothing happened, and then I died. <laughs> well, this this was how they this was the line of communication on the Great Wall of China for a long time, and and yeah. the Mongols used it as well. So it's not entirely ahistorical. But I I do want to say one thing about the sequence in particular is that I love this section of the film and how it bonds. Pippin and Gandalf and that starts with Gandalf like watching Merry and Pippin do their dance in the bar and we see this sort of like wistful mournful look as he sees this like last moan of of joy before he knows the misery these two guys are going to go through and after the episode of the Palantir the pretty traumatic um, encounters with uh, Denethor it's great to see Pippin get this win he becomes essential to Gandalf's plan and I love to see that for the character well, yeah, if you go back to the Mines of Moria when he's, you know, fool of a tuck and, yeah. you know, the disdain he's got for him and now they're, they're bros. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to add that, you know, there's, in the books, there were seven, they mentioned seven beacons and I think they may have added a few additional ones, although it's possible that we're just seeing the same ones from different vantage points, different angles, different, different distances, the way they filmed it. But it does, it, it does feel like they're reaching across a vast landscape of, or different landscapes, different areas of Middle Earth to reach for, yeah. you know, to call out for help. And then Aragorn sees that the beacon's lit and he runs to tell Theoden, who says that Rohan will answer. And the sounding of the bell, coupled with the score and what we're seeing on screen, is again another example of the incredible mix of sound design, score, and perfect editing that these films have employed throughout. And again, I just want to say what an incredible location Edoras is. It's so sad that today it would all be done in the computer and just look nowhere near as realistic as this real world set that they built on that outcrop of rock that was just it was like as if the hand of god made that location for this fictional location in the film yeah i was thinking the same thing watching it again this time just like oh that's that's real we're looking at a real 
a real set or more yeah. than a set. It looks fully functional. It looks like people could live there. Well, this is the beauty of doing all this, you know, using actually horse flesh and shoe leather running around um, Aotearoa, doing this in the country that really barely anybody had shot in before, but there was just so much natural beauty to exploit, you know, and it's like Peter Jackson realized, you know, that this, this went back to the pre-production, which started in the late 90s, is that, well, if we just do this in the right place, we have mountains, we have valleys, we have swamps, we have deserts, we have plains, we have nearly everything you possibly need to do practical in the camera and so it's like all your he your heavy lifting was done in the casting of the landscape yeah and then we cut to the battle at Osgiliath now at daytime and if things weren't going badly enough for Faramir and his men the Nazgul arrive force in their retreat and then Gothmog the, the deformed kind of orc captain he's played by Lawrence McCaw who also played Lurtz the Urukai who killed Boromir and he does double duties in this film he also plays the Witch King and that shot of the Nazgul attacking the retreating horses, which was so prominent in the trailer, and then Gandalf arriving and fending them off with that beam of light. Again, coupled with Shaw's music, it just gives me the chills. It's just incredible. Yeah, just perfect sound design. Just the, the, the way the the battle sounds just kind of cut out, and we just have that like heavenly choral music as Gandalf, you know, rides to save the, these men. It's incredible. I was gonna say at the same time, there's there's a little bit of um, you, you Gandalf's his his abilities as a wizard. You know, he's constantly being touted for his wisdom, his ability, uh, his long his longevity, and all those things. What you really want to see though is him lay down the fucking smack on somebody. So the thing is, whenever he gets a chance to use something that's not just his sword or his staff to whack people in the head you want to see this guy use magic you want to see sorcery this is one of the only instances in this movie where he does something semi-supernatural rather than just have a real you know steel backbone and you know a stout heart and an ability to pretty much be indefatigable in contact he actually uses magic here which doesn't happen a whole yeah. lot so if i can uh quote from tolkien femmer real quick um so gandalf has one of the three elven rings naria the ring of fire when he was given the ring by Círdan the shipwright, he was told, It will support you in the weariness you have taken upon yourself, for this is the ring of fire, and with it you will rekindle hearts in a world that grows chill. So Narya is like the antithesis of the effects of the Nazgul. So what Bill is talking about, this magic is sort of distillation of, of everything that Gandalf was put on Middle-earth to do to make the good that is in the world powerful enough to fight Sauron and the forces of evil. He's your, your buffing character in your RPG world. Yeah. Is it just me? Does, uh, does Gothmog look a little bit like Sloth from the Goonies? <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, you know that, that ability you mentioned of, of Gandalf, John. It, it's basically like a sort of ancient fantasy version of the, the torch off the back of your iPhone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is hope, you know. Yeah, and and I think it's not a coincidence that he also, you know, he says, um, "It's a fool's hope that he says to Pippin, but a hope nonetheless." Yeah, yeah but can he cast magic missile or fireball or something? That would have helped. <laughs> yeah. Now you're speaking my language. Yeah, really. This is how you would serve your city. You would risk its utter ruin. I did what I judged to be right. What you judged to be right? You sent the Ring of Power into Mordor in the hands of a witless halfling. It should have been brought back to the Citadel to be kept safe. Dark and deep in the vaults, not to be used. 
unless at the uttermost end of need. I would not use the ring. Not if Minas Tirith were falling in ruin and I alone could save her. Ever you desire to appear lordly and gracious as a king of old. Baramir would have remembered his father's need. He would have brought me a kingly gift. Boromir would not have brought the ring. He would have stretched out his hand to this thing and taking it he would have fallen. You know nothing of this matter. He would have kept it for his own. When he returned, you would not have known your son. Boromir was loyal to me, not some wizard pupil. And then Faramir tells Gandalf that he's met Frodo and Sam two days ago. And, well, in fact, his actual word is not two days ago. So how many days ago is it then? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So if it wasn't two days ago, how many days ago? I don't know. I just love this sort of ancient way of speaking. He lost his watch. He wasn't really keeping an accurate (laughs) time. And he then reports to his father, Denethor, and we see how bad their relationship is and how broken a man Denethor is. And we see this nice little cameo from Sean Bean as a delirious Denethor has this brief vision of him. And then we cut back to the climb up the stairs leading to Cirith Angol. Now, what's incredible about this scene, as Smeagol pulls Frodo up onto the ledge, is the fact that it was filmed way back during the filming of The Fellowship, and they didn't even have Andy Serkis there at the time. He hadn't even come on board at that point. So all of this stuff was done on the mocap stage and inserted later. Wow. They shot this scene on a day where the weather had prevented them from shooting outside during the shooting of the first film. So instead of losing a day shooting, they went and found the one and only studio space that they could find in Queenstown. They built this ledge that would be at Kirith Angle and shot this scene that was way on in the story in the third film. And they had to determine how dirty Frodo and Sam's clothing and faces would be and they made a best guess as to match it to the rest of what they would eventually film for the third film. And again, the, the wow. logistics of play here just blows my mind. The craft and dedication of every single person that worked on this film, I, I think, is is incredible. Th- that's got to be partially due to the fact that, you know, you have several hundred people just holed up in New Zealand for months or years. All they have to do all day is concentrate on on this movie and... It's a testament to the environment Peter Jackson was able to create that it didn't seem like they were burned out. They loved what they were doing. They were relieved when it was over, but they were able to maintain that dedication throughout the years of making this film that there's no continuity break and even the dirt on these characters. Yeah, man, they I had, a, a, I had a filth sommelier. <laughs> I think everyone involved just knew they were part of something special, something once yeah. in a lifetime. That doesn't happen very often. I know so many people that have worked in film, and if you have one film that you can really say this stands the test of time, that you're so proud to be a part of it, right? So I think everybody involved just was honored and extremely happy. I mean, look, we're talking about it now, 20 years later. There's so many films that came out in 2003, 2004 that no one's even heard of. (laughs) So, But people work just as hard on those. Yeah, and I and you know I think it says to something about the kind of filmmaker that Jackson is that you know, we hear so much about the frustration and burnout of special effects artists working now, but it doesn't seem like there was that experience in Lord of the Rings, even though I'm sure they worked just as hard. So all credit to the people who were in charge of of this production that they were able to foster an environment where people were willing and knowingly 
dedicating so much of their lives to it. Yeah. You notice too in this scene, you mentioned they're on, you know, they're on the, sleeping on the edge of that cliff. They're, I, they're really right on the edge. I was just <laughs> yeah. thinking how much I move at night. Sometimes I fall off out of my bed. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have been able to, uh, to make that work. <laughs> they're wrapped in each other's arms. They're, they're, yeah, they're yeah. Safe. Do you know what I love about that, Adam? Is when you see those shots where you kind of look into that top-down view of the ledge, and you can see yeah. Minas Morgul way down below, still glowing. Yeah. Oh, it's so just, great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It really is. And then from there, then we're back with the Witch King looking towards Gondor as they prepare to march on the city. And we have a nice little scene between Faramir and Pippin, where he tells him that the suit that Pippin is wearing was Faramir's when he was a boy. Sam then falls asleep on the ledge, and well, this was actually Sean Astin's last shot that he did on the trilogy. And after he falls asleep, we see that Gollum was pretending to sleep and does his uh, little bit of mischief with the Lambus bread. Not the Lambus bread. Sneaking. <laughs> the crumbs is. Crumbs on his jackets is. <laughs> <laughs> And then Sam offers to carry the ring to share the load and Smeagol's plan works and an exhausted and now completely paranoid Frodo suspicious of Sam tells him to leave. Now, as this wasn't in the book, this is kind of putting fans of the books watching it for the first time back in 2003 kind of on edge as they wonder what other deviations from the source material Jackson, Fran Walsh and Philbert Bynes might make. It's just such, it's one of those partings where you just think, uh, we, we could see it coming, but, you know, it is just painful. And Sean Astin's tears are just real, you know? Yeah. Give the guy an Oscar. Jesus. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, you really feel for him throughout yeah. this, this and I think it's journey. especially stinging knowing that Frodo basically chooses Gollum over Sam. Yeah. Right. Um, you really want to strangle Gollum right along with Sam in these <laughs> moments. Well, I mean, he's, he's he's not his right mind. Give him credit, sure. at least. Sure. Well, it's, they're kindred spirits now, they? They both share the same addiction. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's like it's like two crack addicts, two heroin addicts, <laughs> uh, you know, having common ground. They they horrible, terrible addiction to this evil thing. It's like they both need to get back to the nexus. <laughs> it's a bad Star Trek Generations <laughs> reference. <laughs> hey, you can throw in whatever Star Trek Generations references you wish. Come over here. Them. But it's, I think there's the a similar kind of like... Uh, I must go back. <laughs> yeah, I must go back. But, you know, remember, even Guinan says that she wanted to go back. So it's the same idea as that once you experience it, once you put that ring on you, there's just... It's it like does being something wrapped in joy as if joy yeah. was something tangible. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then back at Minas Tirith, uh, Faramir and his men ride through the streets of the city out onto the Paleno fields and towards certain death at Osgiliath. Loads of effective slow motion here. Denethor then asks Pippin to give him a song, and Billy Boyd sings lyrics given to him by Philip O'Brien's, and he came up with a tune himself. And then we have Bill's favourite scene, Denethor's deranged eating. Oh man, <laughs> Let, let's pivot for a second here, because we gave credit to Brad Dourif before, but this movie was the introduction to John Noble. You know, like John Noble was a guy who was humping around in Australia for years, they have such a strong, strong, strong theater program that they inherited from the English. And he's just one of those guys that was like a creature of Shakespeare and doing like, you know, Ibsen and, and, and the Dollhouse and Hedda Gabler and all those things. And it's like one by one, you know, some of these real superstars 
we were able to cross off, you know, cross out of Australia. And either, you know, if they, if they saw the room for feature work, they would come over. And that's where you get Kate Blanchett, guys like Hugo Weaving. I mean, these were these were like theater giants that found room front room to do mus- uh, movies. Uh, yeah, so John Noble comes out here. This guy's a stud, man. I mean, you know, if, if you watched The Fringe on Fox, he keeps it going there. He's got a lot of versatility. He's got a classically trained voice. I mean, uh, you know, like say what you will about the English and the way that they just effortlessly pull off um, Shakespeare and Guy Claudius and things like that. But John Noble's an inheritor of that same tradition. But he's a stud in this movie, man. It's like every single movie does slopping tomato juice out of his face, pouring food in there. He's just he's you know and he, he's you know dumping lamp oil in his head. Like this guy eats into every single bit of you know he he is the good guy who's a shitty bad guy who's a good guy who gives birth to. He's got good sons, but he's an asshole himself, twisted by the the duties of being a steward king. Uh, I love everything that John Noble does. He's such an it's MVP all, in this movie. And it's also the extreme close-ups and the sound design adding to yeah. his performance. It all works together so yeah, It well. sounds like his teeth are tearing the flesh of his own yeah. son. So you, you got a combination of John Noble doing King Lear and the film basically doing Goya's Saturn devouring his son. It's incredible. But, I, you know, the way he says, to, he goes, do you sing The Hobbit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, don't make me be that guy. Don't make me be that guy here, right? But if we're giving an award for overacting in this trilogy, he's getting it. Uh, yeah, but it's. I think it's the proper... Look, this is a movie filled with a guy running around with a black mask on the back of a flying lizard. You're allowed to overact. I mean, and it's like, I think that there's a goodly amount of scenery chewing that's permissible. I think the difference is, it's like, there's overacting like Nicolas Cage being stuffed into the Wicker Man, where he actually quite literally is overacting being burned to death. He's too much acting for that. No, Bill, I got to correct you there. I think you'll find it was Edward Woodward. No one else is. Uh... Uh, no one else. Okay. No one else. No. But no, John, I, I, John, I, I... John Noble he destroys the scenery. It's like he's the, he's the reason why there's pieces of, of Minas Tirith to, to trebuchet into the city is because he, he chewed the scenery up and spat it all over the, the Pelennor fields. But I think it's permissible. I think we have reason for him to do that. I think the the only performance for me that goes too much in the overacting is John Rhys Davies in the uh, Paths of the Dead. Him sort of gingerly tiptoeing on skulls, going ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh. <laughs> they were trying desperately to add a little humor in a very difficult film. <laughs> this is not sure. Uh, you know, the first film. That's why I think I love the first one so much. Is that there's a lot of hope and lightheartedness that goes along with the action and the adventure. And this one, it's it's a tough, you know, it's a downer at times. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So then we're really gearing up for battle now, as the trolls push towards the city. Ah, whoa, hang on, whoa, back, back the fuck up a minute, Bill. <laughs> yeah. The deranged eating. Yes. Come on, you you've waited a year to talk about this. You barely mentioned it. The deranged eating is great. I think that I I must have made in our checks chain about three or four different references to cherry tomatoes. <laughs> because, you know, look, yeah. I, I'm just saying, like, me, I, I when I eat cherry, I love cherry tomatoes. It's great. I think it's one of the more superior versions of tomatoes. However, when I eat them, I pop them on my mouth wholly. But it's like there's this great decision Noble makes is, is to actually bite into the cherry tomato halfway through. So it emits that little blast, that little blurk of cherry tomato innards that rolled. By that point, he already has streaks of, like, I believe it's beef juice running down his chin. It's made up to look like he's just essentially globbering as much food as possible into his yob. But it's like once the cherry tomato comes in there, it's absolutely unhinged. 
And there's even another podcast called The Flop House where Stuart Wellington said, no, that's a totally normal way to eat cherry tomatoes, isn't it, guys? And it's like, I've never forgotten that for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, he's savoring I them. To, I have to give a, a shout out to my uh, dear friend and brother in Middle Earth, Jesse, whom I, I rewatch this film with who i uh, he's the recipient of many of my absurd middle earth or <laughs> cherry tomato memes because of this scene so <laughs> apologies so where was i uh yeah we, we, we're gearing up for battle as the, the the trolls are pushing the towers towards the city and we see theoden's army camping at dunharrow aima and legolas tell gimli of the paths of the dead and aragorn sees the king of the dead off in the distance and that's a cool little subtle touch and I'm sure, Adam, on your 65-inch TV or your your now shiny new projector, you know you can see it more clearly. But back when I was watching this back in the day on like a, a much smaller TV, it's not easy to see. And you're looking off, thinking, yeah, "What am I looking at there? Yeah, What's what, that, that what, yeah. green? What's gold? he looking at? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I agree completely. This was probably the first time I really noticed him clearly for the first time, yeah. without wondering what what is he staring at. Yeah. Well, he he goes to you know, the the King of the Dead has that. Um, uh, in a way, the Frighteners was a little bit of a dry run in terms of the way Peter Jackson shot the ghost. The ghost would flip back and forth between actors in pale makeup and skeletal forms. Like John Aston was playing like a Confederate general or something like that. And John Aston, of course, was Sean Aston's dad. He shot with him years before he did uh, Lord of the Rings or anything like that. But his ghost and the Frighteners toggled back and forth between those two forms. And it was like... I mean, it was impressive then, but this was like, it upped it so much more. The two different forms of the King of the Dead, it looks incredible. It's just like a, a complete makeup effect, and it would just toggle back and forth between these two things seamlessly. Yeah, yeah. Then it's night time at the camp, and Eowyn finds Mary some armor. In the book, it was Theoden's childhood armor. And there's a bit of, I don't know, mild, but I suppose well-intentioned sexism from Eima towards Eowyn as he tries to dissuade her from going into battle suspecting that that is what she's planning. And then Aragorn dreams of a dying Arwen before waking as a guard arrives to tell him that they've got a visitor, which is of course Elrond bringing the true King of Gondor, the newly reforged sword of his ancestors. And it is the longest sword that I have seen <laughs> since Kikuchio's sword in Seven Samurai. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's even a shot where the camera just kind of pans up it, and you're like, "Where's the top?" It's <laughs> fucking huge, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. it's too big to for anyone to actually take yeah. out of the scabbard. Um, yeah. But r real quick about this moment between Elrond and Aragorn. Um, so, like, the background of of Elrond is that his wife, like in the first age, was nearly murdered by orcs, and the trauma of that forced her to go west into the Undying Lands. And so he's had to stay and be sort of the, the shepherd of elves for thousands upon thousands of years. And now he has to give away his daughter to a mortal life when he can finally go back and rejoin his wife. So he's this guy who's been harboring tragedy and grief for his entire existence. And now right before the end, he has to do it one more time. And I think Hugo we Weaving has enough import to sort of get that feeling across without that background knowledge. Well, yeah, and I think another great change this made to you from the books was making it Elrond who visits Aragorn. Because I think, John, yeah. is it right that in the books it was Elrond's sons? Yeah, you get a whole cadre of Elrond's sons and the rest of the Dúnedain who visit uh, Aragorn's camp, yeah. But, the, the, but I think because... 
we have such a limited amount of time and, and it is better to sort of pare down the number of characters and to give Elrond another appearance. Yeah, but, you know, th- this is no time to be introducing new characters to the film that we neither know nor care about. Yeah, so yeah, late yeah, yeah. in the story, you know, so, yeah, again, this is why I, I'm just adamant that these are the greatest adaptations ever because for me personally i think they just improve on the book in 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 so many ways and granted this is a different format to what the books are and i have only read them once back in 2003 but i i just do think there are many improvements to the books and this is certainly one of them i think they're in a very interesting conversation Mm. I, i don't like picking one or the other i mean i think the world of tolkien is so rich that i find myself going back to different parts of it all the time it these are books I go back to over and over again in a way that like I like another book that I would go back to often is something like Moby Dick, but that's emotionally exhausting, whereas uh, Lord of the Rings is so fulfilling. If yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And then Aragorn tells Eowyn that they can't be together, and he leaves her, but not before Gimli and Legolas join him, refusing to let him go alone. They then enter the paths of the dead, and Theoden speaks to Eowyn and he hints that he feels that he's not going to return and he leaves Eowyn instructions that she is to take his place should the worst come to the worst and you know this is just a lovely little exchange the next scene then as they make their way along the path of the dead that was shot at a place called the pinnacles again it just goes to show that New Zealand it's got these locations which were just perfectly location scouted and it, you know again I, I just get the the, the sort of cynical feeling that if it was done today, it'd be done all in the computer. But there's, there's just no substitute for these amazing real-world locations that they, they managed to find for these films. And what makes the whole film so visually magnificent is that the landscape of New Zealand is so almost alien, so extreme from mountains to plains to deserts to these incredible rock formations that it allows the set designers and props department enough room to be imaginative because if if this location is real then we can you know let loose our minds you know on the way we can graft or, or create uh sets that we don't have locations for and it creates verisimilitude for the for everything we see in the film yeah i think we we talked about this in one of the earlier episodes about just how new zealand is the perfect middle earth because most people most of us humans <laughs> haven't been there right we haven't witnessed it firsthand so it feels like it belongs in another world but it is in our world it's just not something that we have easy access to yeah 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 and i think it's because we we've seen so many locations like death valley that was used in in so many westerns and right you know we we saw what was it john that they filmed conan in in spain oh yeah Al- almeria in spain almeria of course almeria yeah, that, yeah. It, that's been burned uh, that was that should have been raiders of the lost ark that's played just about every single dry yeah. territory on planet earth but i think what makes these films unique is the fact that there were so many locations which had just never been filmed before and yeah the, you know the new zealand landscape was just so much like switzerland is mm-hmm. you know which was the basis for Tolkien's sort of vision of Lothlorien and Rivendell in particular. That is a very unique location. New Zealand has just got this look that is very unique to that part of the world, and I think it was just perfectly put to use here. And what they do—it's not the Vasquez rocks where we're yeah, not again for the ten thousandth time. And what they do—that's so brilliant—is that those they'll often take a mountain range from the North Island 
and then grafted onto a field of the South Island through CGI. So it's it's a perfect marrying of actual locations and digital recreation. So they're not creating landscapes out of whole cloth, but they're changing around the New Zealand landscape to fit the description of what they need in the scene. Yeah. So then the Rohirrim, they ride for Gondor and Aragorn and co confront the King of the Dead. Now, it's been extended quite a bit from the theatrical version here, and a bit with the wispy ghost arms and the skull avalanche in particular. For me... Hell yeah. Yeah, that, gotta say it, that used to feel like a bit of unnecessary fat on the meat, but I'm really not that bothered by it anymore, as my appreciation for this film is probably greater now than it's ever been, because... What I once saw as flaws and minor niggles just don't bother me like they once did. In fact, the shot of the Skull Avalanche, and again, this blows my mind. So, but I mentioned to you, Bill, before we recorded, right? This was shot for the pickups for the extended edition and was the final bit of shooting that Jackson did for the film. But this was after he won all of those Academy Awards for Return of the King in February 2004. So after he won Best Director, Best Film, whatever, for Return of the King, he went and filmed this additional footage for the extended cut that would come out in December 2004, or November 2004. Just blows my mind. Yeah. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of miniature skulls yeah. and yeah. life-size skulls. It's a fabrication nightmare. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it was set decorated by me. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the fact that, you know, yeah, he went to bat, you know, for us, to create the extended editions to give us this scene, I think is incredible. I would have to ask the King of the Dead, though. I'd be like, um, so is there a room that's just full of femurs? Yeah. <laughs> Where's <laughs> the rest of your body? <laughs> but like you were, you There's were some OCD guy. one that's like separating all the bones. You yeah, know, in different individual piles. skeleton. <laughs> the, the, the hall of rib cages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like there are just so many like, great moments in this sequence. Just like you know. It was made by those who are dead, and the dead keep it. And Viggo Mortensen saying, you will suffer me. Like, they're just, like, stand up and applaud moments. So even if narratively, it's a little extra fat than you need. But it's just too cool and too fun to skip. You know, I, I've watched this, as Sky, as you mentioned, for the first time uh, in 4K with HDR and on a laser projector. And it looks absolutely stunning. But there are moments in 4K on a larger screen like this where you start to see some of the imperfections in the CGI of this time. And so that's only that might be one of the downsides to watching this in such a high resolution and projected larger than, than you would normally see it on a television is you start to, to see those things. But all of the film elements look better than they've ever looked. Everything is just, the color is so rich, the detail, the film grain, it's all there and it just, it's gorgeous. So anyone that hasn't watched these films in 4K, uh, I would highly recommend it. And it did take 20 years and two generations of like visual clarity for those CGI imperfections to start to show. Exactly. Yeah. Speaks yeah. The there's, bar this, there's barely any of them, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. yeah. So guys, what, what do you think of the Paths of the Dead segment of the film as a whole? Because I, I gotta say it, and I've really come around on this film, and I'll come to this later, but I, I used to feel that I, 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 I almost wished that back in the first film, they kind of set up uh, the fact that Asildo had been kind of betrayed by uh, the King of yes. the Dead when he was alive and the fact that he didn't turn up to the, the, the big battle that we see in the opening prologue and, and the fact that, that he kind of turned his back on Asildo and then Asildo then cursed him 
And this is why we yeah. find him now, thousands of years on, in this kind of ghostly form along with his army. Jackson himself has said that having an unstoppable ghost army is a bit of a story problem, so they had to yeah. add that extra bit of tension as he seems to fail to get them to help him. Yeah, it it always felt a little bit like this, like, oh, here's a way that we'll get out of this problem. And here they are. Like it just sort of felt very, for, at, at my first viewing at least, felt kind of forced. Like they yeah. had they just kind of put this in there to help the good guys win. But now I, I don't think I feel that way the same the same way at least. I I find that it works really well and I I appreciate it more. Well, but when especially you're the, yeah, when you're watching the extended versions, the thing is, it's like you're talking about eleven hours of movies, so. Yeah. It's like, you know, even though there is potentially this, this neutron bomb that could be of invaluable use to the good guys, I mean, the movie goes through so many dips and lulls on the way there that, honestly, even the information that there is this existence of a neutron bomb, the mythology of why this king is available, all, the, all these green, wispy dead guys are chilling in a valley somewhere with, a you know, a kingdom of skulls. It's like that sits alongside the knowledge that you've learned every single time you turn a corner here. There's some bit of ephemera and archiva that shows up. Mm -hmm. So it's like this this arcane eldritch world is just loaded with secrets. You know, killer spiders, green glowing ghost cities, you know, a huge staircase to nowhere, a city full of elves, you know, drinking and dancing little people with hairy feet. It's like, well, Christ, why the hell not this too at the same time? And it's like, to me, you know, it's like, it, it still doesn't seem like they're going to pull this one out of the fire until the ghost guys show up. So it's like the tension of watching this over 11 hours still allows for a, you know, essentially what is a flattener, a game flattener, but it doesn't seem to take away from tension for me. Yeah, and, and I think, and I think also it, because we don't know if they're going to make it in time. You know, there's clearly we're intercutting with the battle, so we know yeah. that lots of people are dying, and this might not all come together in time, but of course it does. Here's the question. Do, do the Ghost Army need those boats, or could they have just ran across the water? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in the book, they just run across the water, and the yeah. Corsairs just see them and immediately abandon ship. They don't okay. even yeah. need to attack. But I, I think um, the the problem of an invincible ghost army is solved by Aragorn being who he is. Like, well, you helped us in this one instance. I promised you I'd free you, and now you're free. Yeah. And because he is the future king, Elisar, that his his moral fortitude allows him to command this army of the dead in the, in the first place. So I think because of Aragorn, who is who he is, the way Vigo plays him, I, I think it narratively solves itself. Yeah, because in, in the book, isn't it? The army of the dead don't even go to Minas Tirith. They take the, the Corsair ships for Aragorn, and then yeah. he sends them on his way, doesn't he? Yeah, and there's a much longer sequence of the Dúnedain and the Sons of Elrond like journeying through the paths of the dead for miles and miles and miles. And so it's a much more involved journey to even get them. But because we don't have the Dúnedain in, the, in this movie, and we don't have the time to spend on that like day-long journey, um, we just sort of have to find the path by almost happenstance. But it works, I, th I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jackson, Walsh, and, and Boyens, they made the decision for them to carry on and go to Minas Tirith and, and sort of help clean up the conclusion of the Battle of Palano Fields. Which, yeah, you know, like you say, if you've got this army of the dead, you, you kind of need to put them good, to good use. But I think it's it's important that they don't, they don't come with them for the final battle. So that's important, right? They're not just using this unstoppable army yeah. throughout the entire film. It's just one task that they yeah. have to accomplish. So they then get out of the caves and then they see the Corsair ships making their way to Minas Tirith and then the King of the Dead obviously tells them that he'll help them. And then 
we've got a wounded near dead Faramir. He's taken to Denethor, and we just see how completely deranged Denethor is at this point because he has a complete meltdown. Gothmog then gives the order for the prisoners to be released. A pure pre Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson moment as he launches all the seven severed heads, which are catapulted over the walls into the city. And as Denethor sees the size of Sauron's army, he just completely loses the plot. Gandalf knocks him out, and then the battle begins proper. I, and I don't know, you know, maybe maybe he's not unhinged. Maybe maybe he's got some good decisions for this. I think we should listen to Denethor because I kind of I kind of buy what this guy's throwing down, you know. I, I think you know that that speaks to the real evil of Sauron is that he's able to infect people's minds through the Palantir. He's able to instill fear in entire populations by merely existing, and and that's you know what led to the breaking of Denethor's mind, and you know it, to do it so severely that he creates enmity between father and son. You know it's a truly terrible thing that he's done to Denethor, and that Denethor through his own short-sightedness let happen to himself well and, and when you see that when you see his vantage point of the battlefield yeah <laughs> i mean i think anybody in his position might be like this is not going to go well well <laughs> well except everybody else who's in the the gondorian army right and his own son and then we have the orcs and the trolls firing catapults gondor is using these huge trebuchets to launch giant chunks of masonry at the orcs and my favorite cut in the film is when Gothmog sees that huge piece of uh, masonry flying through the air towards him. I think Peter Jackson called it the Pearl Harbor shot. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he kind of steps aside at the very last second as a huge piece of wall hits the ground next to him and then he spits at it and then we immediately cut to the Nazgul swooping down onto the city. Again, how would your score here? It is just, it is just phenomenal. And then the shots of the Nazgul destroying the trebuchets, picking up the soldiers, dropping them onto the lower levels of the city. It's just so good. And and Jackson seems to have made a concerted effort to... Well, for me, make he made this battle not feel like a retread of Helm's Deep. And I definitely think he succeeds. I agree, yeah. I think yeah. especially because of the Nazgul's... You know, that, that by itself, they have... Because they have such a high elevated fortress, that's the one thing that kind of instantly levels the playing field. They have, uh, they, they are at a disadvantage because they're destroying the catapults and, as you said, just dropping soldiers left and right. Statistically speaking, yeah, John, exactly. The psychological thing is that it's designed to break their spirit because the, the Nazgul can't get everybody. It just can't lay waste to rank after rank after rank. But what it can do is decimate them. If it could just pick up every one out of ten dudes and, like, toss them over the wall and you're saying, well, is it going to be my turn next? You don't got to kill everybody. If you just essentially crumple their spirits like a balled up piece of paper. Yeah, and, and just the presence of the Nazgul instills fear and terror into every human in the vicinity, not to mention the fact that, you know, their loved ones are being launched into their walls like, you know, so much gravel in, in body parts. So much volleyball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that little battering ram that the orcs are using just isn't working, so Gothmog orders them to bring up the wolf, and then we see <laughs> Grond, Hammer of the Underworld. Grond! 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 Let's all and chant, then, come on. Yeah. Then, then you heard Samuel L. Jackson say, oh, you're sending a wolf? <laughs> Seriously, if Tolkien was born 60 years later, he would have been a power metal vocalist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably. And then at this point, if you're watching it on DVD or Blu-ray, you'll have to change over to disc two. And now 
The second part of the film, if you're watching it on disc, begins with Aragorn and Co. confronting the Corsair pirates, one of whom was Peter Jackson himself making another cameo. Smeagol then leads Frodo into the caves and, as we later find out, is Shelob's lair and he quickly abandons him, the trap that he's now set being sprung. Frodo then realises he's been had and he very much regrets sending Sam away, obviously. Sam, uh, who is still descending the steps, he takes a fall and, and the way he lands on his face always makes me wince. Oh, yeah. It really does look like he hits hard ground. Like Yeah, it's the force. Stephen Baldwin does that in The Usual Suspects when he gets he's shot and he stabs in the back and he just sort of walks into the shot and does a face plant. Yeah. You yeah. know, it looks painful. Yeah. Sam then finds the discarded Lambus bread and realizes he too has been had. Frodo then uses the gift that Galadriel gave him way back in the first film in Lothlorien and we get that really, and this is an arachnophobe's nightmare, that creepy shot in the background of Shelob before she pounces. You can just see her legs moving in the dark and her design is based on a New Zealand tunnel web spider which Jackson would find when he was digging around in the garden as a kid and mm. they terrified him. Frodo then gets caught in a mesh of webs and as Smeagol is teasing him, he hacks himself free with Sting and then he and Smeagol fight. And as the fight sort of subsides and, and Frodo sort of pulls himself together and explains to Smeagol what he's got to do, it's that look of building rage in his face when he realizes that Frodo is gonna destroy the ring, his precious. And he then pounces and he falls into a chasm and we don't see him then for quite a bit in the film. This is just such a miracle of, of design. Both the lair and Shelob herself. Like, the lair is just this undulating tube of, like, divots and webs and corpses. Like, it's not just a tunnel that, that weaves in to and fro. You know, you have to climb over things. There's blind alleyways. And then Shelob herself just has this mangled, disgusting face. And it's just human enough that you can see emotion in it because, you know, a, the face of a spider, you can't read emotion into it at all. But the acting and design of Shelob, we're able to see when she's afraid or when she's stalking or, or when she's in pain. It's just like an, an incredible d design and performance from the effects and design team. Yeah, yeah. And then Frodo collapses and all of a sudden he's back in Lothlorien and Galadriel pulls him to his feet. It's just a lovely little moment and it's so well done because it's that juxtaposition between, as you say, John, that amazingly designed dark, horrible cave and all of a sudden then we're back in glorious Lothlorien. And there's not even any dialogue from Kate Blanchett, but it, it's just seeing her back in the film. It, it, you know, she's barely in this trilogy, but every time she is, she just leaves her mark. Yeah, I, I think she was like in New Zealand for all of two weeks. Yeah. And, you know, she she's an indelible presence in film history. You know, forever from that, you know, just, yeah, w what a what a performance. The only Galadriel in, in my mind, for sure. Yeah, And there's a, a lovely little scene in the extended edition between Mary and Eowyn. And I love the efforts that Peter Jackson and co. go to to establish these relationships, these friendships between characters so late on in the story. And as you said, like, like we saw between Pippin and Gandalf. And then we're back at Minas Tirith. The enemy are using Gron to smash down the main gates. Pippin then sees a demented Denethor making his way to the tombs of the stewards with Faramir being carried on a stretcher and we just see that the, the tree is now blooming that one little white flower. Gandalf then tells the men to stand their ground no matter what comes through the gates. The gates break open and it's a load of these huge heavily armoured 
battle trolls, and you could just see Gandalf's face, and he's thinking, "Ah, oh, shit." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they and they lay waste to that front line of. <laughs> oh, don't they just? Yeah. And then back at Kirithangle, Shelob is stalking Frodo, and then she jabs him with her stinger. He collapses, and she cocoons him in a web, and then Sam arrives, armed with Sting and the Light of Arendil. And this fight is just so good. And I just love, as you say, John, all the disgusting detail on Shelob. She's just this CGI creation, but there's just this real weight to her, aided by some amazing sound design, like the sound of feet makes on, on the ground. Sam then stabs her in the abdomen, and she stumbles off screaming. Sam then thinks Frodo is dead and he leaves him as the orcs approach and they carry him off to the tower. Of course, all this is in the books, but in the books it happens in the two towers. Once again, a brilliant move to put all of this in the third film after the yeah. second film ditched the story structure of the second book, which meant that the story of Frodo and Sam could be told alongside that of the others in terms of the chronology of the story. Yeah. Now, obviously, The Lord of the Rings is is not an unfilmable novel because, hey, we have these three movies. Hmm. But the the structure is not cinematic. The, the 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 chunks of time spent with these characters is much much longer per chapter, and so the narrate the narrative of uh, Sam and Frodo in Shelob's lair and Kareth Ungol extends into what we see in Return of the King, and so that makes it a very interesting challenge for anyone adapting it but i think they totally made the right decision in, in moving things around because if they put this into towers we would have like the first two-thirds of return of the king without sam and frodo and so i think this to totally makes sense i think if this is the indelible artistry and do not underestimate the dramaturgy of jackson walsh boy and in terms of this sort of top-down look not just the fact that every single time a blacksmith you know, pounded a piece of metal. It looks incredible and you can see the detail in the film. Think about the bigger picture of the way that they rearrange the story to make a nigh unfilmable three-part trilogy that's just loaded with details into something more like a metal war movie. You know, you said the Pearl Harbor shot before and it's like this resembles, you know, wartime uh, fantasy heavy metal filmmaking more than it does, you know, tweed Englishmen in, in jackets, you know, singing and eating and playing cards and smoking pipes, which is what the, you know, he, he was very interested in writing about when he wrote these books. So I think that, you know, pulling those pieces apart and making a sort of more coherent three-part story out of it is, you know, the ace. That's maybe the thing we'll look back on these is the most successful adaptation of all time, simply for that kind of work that it did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all that intercutting, of course, makes it appear as though these things are happening at the same time, but in different locations, and it helps to kind of keep the story moving so you don't yeah. have to follow every step of those characters in, in one long sequence. Yeah, but Adam, that's that's old school, old school film grammar. I mean, the idea of a yep. crosscut that, you know, yep. like the, the tension, 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 it just, it just winds up in all these scenes. That's the sort of thing we grew up having it was imitated to some degree of success but to now i mean that sort of cross-cutting in terms of editorial style has mostly been abandoned uh, out of this sense of the idea of not taxing the viewer who's enjoying a multi-screen experience when they're watching something but you've lost something because the amount of tension you could uh generate treating your film that way right yeah uh so then the low levels of minas tirith are now being overrun and i i just love the choral music the show uses to build the despair here and 
in, in a scene removed from the theatrical version, but one that was in the trailers, Gandalf confronts the Witch King and his staff is shattered. The Witch King then lights up his flaming sword, but then we hear the horns in the distance and the fucking Rohirrim arrive. What a moment. Now we have one of, for me, the most rousing speeches in all of film. This scene, man, as the Rohirrim charge with Shaw's rousing score following Theoden's speech, and then as they just run into the orcs. I mean, the sound design is so strong. It's all just so effectively immersive. It, it, it's just amazing. But I love that the orcs, they actually blanch, you know, like they blink and they pivot yeah. because they realize another front just opened up, but it's like it, you didn't expect the cavalry to come your way. And, you know, all the little goblins and whatnot are going to get stamped on and turn into goo really quickly, which is exactly what happens. But it's the one thing when you look at, the, what's his name, Gothmog? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like he starts, you know, this is where he starts to blink. I mean, when he steps aside of the huge piece of masonry, that's like acknowledging physics. That's one thing. But it's like, this is like, oh, shit, you know, what, yeah. this, this, could, this could potentially go south on us. And I love that, you know, the, the speech is so good and the audience is so on board with, the mission of the Rohirrim, you know, in, and in every one of them, including Mary, screams death as they charge into battle because <laughs> this is gonna be if this is gonna be their last stand, they're gonna take some orcs with them. Yeah, if, he's, if you're not scared of death, then you're gonna fight a lot harder. Yeah. Well, it's that mentality that Thaden said at Helm's Deep, isn't it? He said, yep. you know, I, I would have him make such a stand as to be worthy of remembrance, and he's carrying that on here, isn't it? Yeah. And and I think that's why Awen is so adamant about going with them because sure it is a really important duty to stay and safeguard her people but she wants to be there making this the last stand for humanity and and i think you know she really does deserve that oh god yeah yeah 
Gandalf and Pippin then stop Denethor from burning Faramir alive and now a fully aflamed Denethor runs probably about a quarter of a mile before dropping off the prow <laughs> of the city. Because if you look yeah. at the geography of Minas Tirith, he has run quite a distance before he falls off the edge. Real quick. Yeah. We're good sprinters. Definitely over <laughs> short distances. I, real quick, I want to shout out to the effects team because Shadowfax kicks Denethor into the fire but that was accomplished with mirrors and not CGI. Yeah. So just great in-camera effects. Wow. Right yeah. And then just as the Rohirrim, again in the upper hand in the battle, we have the film's big at-at moment as they see the Haradrim stomping towards them on their giant Mumakil. Ah, there's, there's just too much epic and brilliantly staged action here culminating in Eowyn and Merry off their horses fighting on the ground, Eowyn wounding Grothmog. And then we have Gandalf's far green country speech to Pippin, which I kind of suppose in a way foreshadows Frodo's ultimate fate. Mm. And then we have the Witch King swooping down and attacking Theoden, and as he moves his foul beast in for the kill, Eowyn comes to his aid, chopping off the beast's head, and then we see the Witch King in all of his might with that absurdly big mace on a stick and chain. <laughs> kind of slow with it. <laughs> yeah, really, God, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, he's like whipping around a small car on the end of a chain. Yeah. <laughs> and then... The, the Corsair ships arrive at the dock and Aragorn leads the dead army into the battle. There's plenty for the both of us. May the best dwarf win. And then the Witch King. He gets the best of Eowyn, grips her by the throat, and then he utters to her that fateful line. You fool. No man can kill me. Die now. I am no man. And when Aragorn comes into the battle, that the first orc that he kills at Paleno Fields was actually played by his son Henry. That was filmed right at the end of the pickup shoot for Return of the King. Now Legolas's big kind of grandstanding moment taking down the Mummikill. It's been made fun of with him sliding off the trunk at the end, but come on, surely by this point it's earned. Yeah, Legolas has the least to do um, out of the Fellowship, and so I think any time we get a chance to shine a light on his both wisdom and battle prowess is much appreciated. And the Army of the Dead then sweep through the city, they clean up, and then Eowyn comforts a broken Theoden in... Well, another one of those moments that just always gets me choked up. It's probably the equal to Boromir's death for me in terms of like the emotional weight and it's really the most sort of fitting heroic end for his character and was actually the last thing that Bernard Hill shot. Now, Bill, in our Two Towers mm. episode, you said that Bernard Hill was perhaps the MVP of the second film. Now, I know we've said that this is you know Sam's film, but do you agree that this sort of thing is carried through to the third film and he is as equally important a character as he was in The Two Towers. 
Yeah, what Bernardale has to do is actually go toe-to-toe with Vigo in terms of being a big-screen combat stud. You know, Vigo is, up to this point, he's still playing the Unlikely King. Like, he's he's trying to earn the right to do so, and getting the sword and, and actually doing the combat is one thing, but being the leader of men is something completely different. Like, we've seen Bernard Hill encapsulate... Look, the guy, he was the fucking captain of the titanic the guy knows how to run a business okay so the thing is it's like him being the king of edoras in edoras like in his kingdom there's something so so unstudied and so calm about how he does his business that you really do believe his regal down to the ground presence as a horseman you know he's not just a king of an ivory turret somewhere you know all these men ride horse flesh these are these are country maidens these are people who churn their own butter and he looks like the king of those guys and so i you know i mean i think bernard hill doesn't turn in a false note he understood the arc he showed valor when it was when it was you know he showed fear uh, in the proper term at the proper time and ultimately dies in a very compelling way you know i very Actors want to die on screen. They want to design their own death if they can. And he gave us the death of a king. And it's a wonderful piece of this film right at the end. Oh, yeah. And I think it's important, you know, this is Eowyn just coming off of slaying the witch king with, with the help of, of Mary. And, you know, in the book that in the fight, she's described as slender, but like a steel blade. That wherewithal comes from the relationship she has. And I think it's it's so beautifully played by these two actors that they're able to be there for each other um, at, at, at the death of Theoden. My, my body is broken. Oh, <laughs> oh stop. Oh. He's like a Danny Trejo in Heat. I can't feel anything, Neil. <laughs> oh, don't. Oh, they killed my Anna. Oh, don't. <laughs> What'd you tell them? I don't know. <laughs> Jesus. Aragorn then releases the Army of the Dead as he promised. Aoma finds Eowyn now kind of collapsed and due to exhaustion and her injuries. And then in the extended edition, we have the Houses of Healing sequence as Aragorn tends to Eowyn. And it's Liv Tyler adding the vocals to Howard Shaw's music, which yeah. is quite fitting. Yeah, so for me, this is one of the most important parts of the book, The Houses of Healing. And so I, I wish they had kept more of it in the film because it's so essential to Aragorn as becoming the the king of both Gondor and Arno that a motif throughout this section of the book is the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. So that it's not martial prowess, it's not the fact that he has his bloodline, it's not the fact that he has his reforged sword, it's the fact that in his practice and in his goals he is bringing people together, he is healing people with his own hands, which is, you know, uh, an allegory for the way he'll be as a king. And so for Tolkien... And I think for our understanding of this character, of this book, of this story, it's not might makes right. It's not blood. It's the fact that he's willing to put in the work to make these people's lives better, to, to get in and get his hands dirty, to heal the wounds, both mental and physical, of, of the earth. And I think that that scene is essential to understand yeah. the story. I, it does work in the book, but I just think in terms of the, the pace that the film is trying to maintain and all the stuff is still yet to show us, I, I just think it had to be cut down to what it is in the film. Mm-hmm. And in the theatrical version, Pippin finds Merry at daytime after the battle. But as things have now been moved around in the edit, uh, the scene now takes place at night, as this scene follows the Houses of Healing, which itself was also set at night time. Back then at Kirithangal, the orcs are fighting over Frodo's mithril vest. Things kick off. 
and Sam makes his move to rescue Frodo. This is extended in the longer version. As Sam fights the orcs, we see one of them making off with a mithril vest, which was obviously setting up the later appearance of the Mouth of Sauron, itself one of the big additions to the longer cat. Sam then finds Frodo, gives him the ring, but not before himself, being somewhat reluctant to do so. And it's this aspect of the story, really, for me, that is a clear portrayal of addiction, be it drug addiction or whatever, and I think is so well done throughout all of these films. Gandalf and co then decide how best to help Frodo and Sam and it's Aragorn's idea to create a diversion to take Sauron's gaze away from the plains of Gorgoroth where they presume Frodo and Sam to be. Aragorn then uses the Palantir to get Sauron's attention. He shows him the reforged sword that he's now got. Sauron in turn then shows him a vision of Arwen dying. He then drops the Evenstar and it shatters as he'd seen it do earlier in a dream and then we cut to them riding out of Minas Tirith Mordor. That's a hero shot, isn't it? Oh, yeah. how, how about the balls on that guy for grabbing the damn Palantir and like yelling into it? Come yeah. and get me, bitch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's smack talk, isn't it? Yeah. He's grabbing the mic and he's like, he's calling him out. He says, a sphincter says Palantir? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's another sort of show of Aragorn's sort of worthiness as a king is because when he makes eye contact with Sauron, Sauron is afraid. And yeah. that's why they're able to use that army as a distraction because Sauron is like, oh, I need to quash Aragorn right now. Yeah. And and that's why Frodo and Sam are able to, to get into the crack of doom. Yeah, Isildur's heir is actually a threat to him. There's no, yeah. there's no reason why he would not pay attention to that. Yeah. Then Faramir and Eowyn have a bit of a moment which leads to them later being together at Aragorn's coronation. And then the sequence of Frodo and Sam making their way through Mordor in orc armor. That wasn't in the theatrical cut, if I remember. And there's quite a bit of additional footage here. And it just makes, I don't know, it just makes their journey a bit more perilous than it was in the theatrical cut. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. It's really, at this point, you're really just like, get to the mountain, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just feels like it's never going to happen. But it's, but that's what makes it work. It, it, it needs to feel like it's never going to happen or you don't really feel the weight of the situation and they then managed to get away from the orc army they make their way across that incredible boulder plain which was a real new zealand location they then ditch both the orc armor and all the stuff that they no longer need such as sam's pots and pans and then we just cut to them resting sam shivering uh, and he just really sells how much they're just worn out and then there's that beautiful little scene of this of the clouds parting briefly and Sam seeing the stars, but Frodo is just too weak now to see it. All the while, the Great Eye is scanning the landscape looking for them. They've now run out of both food and water, and the realization that they might not be making it back finally sinks in. You know, one of the details that I like about this, especially when you see Frodo shirtless, is that, you know, the, the actual necklace and the ring itself has left scorch marks on yeah. him. There's some. Yeah. I can't tell if it's if it's intended to be a welt or an abrasion or a burn or something or a concussion or such, or maybe all of the above. But it's the idea that we all know that that ring weighs just like what a fraction of a few grams, perhaps. And you know, but that's like the weight of this thing was like drawn on his body as if it's scoring his flesh just to carry it. And I love that the, the potential is that in fact, no, this thing only weighs as much as the small necklace and the ring itself. It's just that the power and the energy go off of it creates this actual, you know, it's mortifying his flesh to hold on to it as if to underscore the travail of being the ring bearer. 
Yeah, you can see, can't you, that it's just like as if the chain is just cutting and burning into yeah. his flesh. Yeah, and I love that, as you mentioned, the great eye, the effect of how it's like almost like a spotlight shining and scanning yeah. the, the, the terrain, looking for them. And the way you just, you, you worry that if it just even gets a little bit of light on you, yeah. it might, it's, it'll yeah. see you. But like, you just have to be just in the shadows and right out of its, its gaze. And it's just very, very effective. And, and one of my favorite little bits is that bit where Frodo was just walking and stumbling in front of Sam. And he looks like he's swatting flies away with his hands. Yeah. And it, it just really sells how much he's just losing his grip on reality. Yeah. And then meanwhile, Aragorn and the others have now arrived at the Black Gates. My master, Sauron the Great, bids thee welcome. Is there any in this route with authority to treat with me? We do not come to treat with Sauron, faithless and accursed. Tell your master this. The armies of Mordor must disband. He is to depart these lands, never to return. Oh, old Greybeard. I have a token I was bidden to show thee. Silence. No! Silence! The halfling was dear to thee, I see. Know that he suffered greatly at the hands of his host. <sighs> Who would have thought one so small could endure so much pain? And he did, Gandalf. He did. Oh. And who is this? Isildur's heir. It takes more to make a king than a broken elvish play. Yeah! I guess that concludes negotiations. I do not believe it. The Mouth of Sauron <laughs> sequence. Bruce Spence, the uh, gyrocopter guy from Mad Max 2, he plays uh, Sauron's messenger. As well as having a helmet that reveals only his mouth, Weta digitally increased the size of his mouth by 50%. And I just love all the splits in the skin around his mouth. Yeah. And, and the teeth and that, like that black goo that's on him. And yeah, it, it, he's just one amazing creation he is. And Aragorn heads in after he goads them about Frodo's death. Little continuity error though in the extended edition. When he cuts to the wide shot and they're riding through the gates, the mouth of Sauron's body is gone. Oh. Yeah, it's a hey, good point. I'd... Here's a question. Is the mouth of Sauron a different race or species entirely or is he a goblin? Like, do, is there any like, he, insight? He's, or... he's a man. Yeah, he's a man that has been twisted uh, by his okay. use of the black speech, yeah. John. Is that right? Yes, yes. So he's been in the service of Sauron for centuries, and yeah. so he's now that the Witch King is dead, he's sort of the chief lieutenant. Yeah, because if you look carefully, you can see that there's black speech etched into the top of the helmet, isn't it? Um, I that is a detail I did not notice, but well, there is. Yeah, I. there's there's writing kind yeah. of etched around the rim. Yeah. 
Bruce Spence is a, is a, a New Zealand legend coming out of um, the Mad Max movies. He was in uh, Star Trek. Uh, oh, no, he was in Star Wars um, Episode 3. He played yeah. the admi- administrator of Utapal. He worked with Werner Herzog on Where the Green Ants Dream. Um, he's kind of one of those guys that's been doing it all um, on the other side of the globe. But he's a real reliable character actor with a lot of weird quirks. But I'm, I'm glad to see that if they're going to shoot something in his home territory, I think it would have been a shame, probably an insult, even a slap if he didn't bring him in. Although it is really a damn shame this didn't make the theatrical cut. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Also interesting that he has, you know, one of those faces you'll remember for the rest of your life, but his face <laughs> is entirely covered by a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just a little way he talks in it. I have a yeah. token I was bidden to give thee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking <laughs> it. And his teeth are so big that you can't imagine his, like, lips being able to close. You yeah. Know? <laughs> know that he suffered greatly at the hands of his host. <laughs> that, excellent, excellent work. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West! Now this film, it seems full of big rousing speeches, but every one of them just works. Yeah, and you know, at this point, you know, we were saying that I'll just get to the battle, get get to the mountain, but I am riveted with every word that Aragorn says in that speech. Yeah. Like it's just perfect. Yeah. Frodo and Sam then are crawling up the side of Mount Doom as Sauron's army surrounds Aragorn, Gandalf and the others. And Howard Shaw's score here, the, the, the use of the flute as Frodo and Sam struggle up the slopes, it, it's, again, uh, it, it's just perfect. And that little exchange uh, before the battle between Legolas and Gimli, I never thought I'd... Um, what, what's the line? I never thought I'd die side by side with an elf. How about you side, side by, by side, side with, with a friend? friend. An echo of I, previous... That I could yeah. do. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's just the ultimate bromance, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then Sam holding Frodo in his arms and trying to get him to remember the Shire and the taste of strawberries and, and Frodo's desperate, terrified response about uh, being naked in the dark. There's no yeah. veil between me and the wheel of fire. And, and Sam then, you know, it's the ultimate heroic moment as Sam picks him up and, you know, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. And uh, if that moment chills. doesn't break you, then really you must have just the hardest of hearts. Even you, Bill. You know, if, if the <laughs> look, if the Oscars had had a stand-up and cheer moment back then, this probably would have beat the Flash entering the Speed Force, is what I think. <laughs> <laughs> probably. But, you know, and I know, you know, Tolkien says that he detests allegory, but I think clearly that's not true. Because, you know... It's been well talked about how much Sam was inspired by people that he served with in yeah. World War One, and I think that moment is what those men did for people like Tolkien in World War One. They put him on their backs and mm. helped them survive 
the most traumatic experience of a generation. And I think the way it's written here, the way it's played by Sean Astin, it's just absolutely devastating. God. Now, originally, they planned to have Anatar, Sauron's original elven form, walking towards Aragorn through the gates. But they removed this, and they just made it seem as though the eye of Sauron was trying to seduce him. Then, back on the slopes, Smeagol makes his move as they approach the entrance to the Crack of Doom. culmination of the ultimate betrayal of Smeagol about the fact that he is the one ultimately that is in control and he is the one truly addicted to the ring I I, I just love that about turn it's just played out beautifully and it, it's so you know it's a fulfillment of everything that we've seen between Gollum and the Hobbits from the Hobbit up until now because it's only due to the mercy of Frodo and Bilbo that Gollum is around to accomplish his destiny, which is to to, to get further the, back, the yeah. yeah to further the destruction of, of the ring and yeah. and so it's not it's not that Frodo failed to destroy the ring himself it's that Frodo was merciful and compassionate enough when he had his wits about him that allowed Gollum to be there to let the ring be, be destroyed so we're here because of mercy not because of Frodo's addiction to the ring. And don't forget, I mean, for, uh, Gollum took like a shitload of punishment at the hands of the orcs and he yeah. had thrown down a chasm. I, I, at this point, I think that the, there's a little bit of the Wiley Coyote to him, where it's just like, honestly, you could run him over the steamroller like he was Frank Drebin. Or no, like he was uh, uh, Ricardo Montalban in, uh, in The Naked Gun. I have a feeling that we haven't seen the thing that would kill him other than dumping him in a volcano. Anything short of that just seemed to like essentially interrupt his day by about a half hour or so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said, you know, we mentioned he's like, you know, he's like an addict. I think he's like on bath salts or something, you know, like it, yeah, it, yeah. Not, nothing's going to take this guy down but yeah this is I, as i mentioned earlier this is sam's kind of second round bout with uh with Gollum, where you know you really again see sam rise to the occasion you know without sam there Fro- frodo doesn't succeed mm-hmm. so this yeah, is certainly and then sam fights smeagol as frodo makes a, a last desperate run for the entrance and then as the foul beasts attack the others gandalf sees the moth once again and the eagles arrive sam then follows frodo into the crack of doom and is here that we have the ultimate hellish kind of fiery climactic showdown and even more so than the fact Smeagol is is really is the bad guy the ultimate gut punch as Frodo turns to Sam and says
ring is mine. Just as Saruman said to Gandalf, there are none who can resist the will of the ring. And the film sticks to its own logic. No one yeah. ultimately can resist the ring. And it's not like Frodo was ever going to be in the position where he could just throw it in. By this point, he's too far gone. And I just love the fact that he sticks to this. And he's like, no, do you know what? I'm fucking keeping this on. Yeah, there are people that are strong enough to refuse the ring initially because we see Gandalf, Gladriel, Aragorn, yeah. and Anne Faramir be like, no, not for yeah. me. But... If they, if any of them had worn it for a significant yeah. amount of time, they'd be right where Frodo is at this God, point. Yeah. Well, doesn't this take place in the exact like location geographically as the uh, the the when we're first shown this in the first place? When, yeah, uh, yes, when, exactly. Yeah, Seal yeah. do doesn't he? He refuses to throw, and it's just a replay of that. It's in the exact footsteps. It's almost yeah. the exact same position on on top of Mount Doom. Yeah. Yeah. And then Frodo puts on the ring. Sauron immediately senses it and sends the Nazgul. Aragorn, meanwhile, is is, is fighting a, a battle troll. Smeagol then knocks Sam out and jumps on a now invisible Frodo and bites his finger off. And finally, he's got his precious once again. And that shot, the camera, the virtual camera, passes through the ring. It's just perfect. And finally, he, he's standing on two feet as opposed to all fours as we've seen him throughout this film and the previous two. Frodo and Smeagol then wrestle for the ring. Smeagol falls over the edge and we follow him down into the, the lava and the way the ring cools the lava beneath, but eventually then melts, timed with Sam pulling Frodo to safety. Again, it's just perfectly edited. And then that shot of the eye of Sauron's reaction as the ring is destroyed and that visual representation of this huge tower with a flaming eye atop it, falling down as the eye implodes and then sends out this giant shockwave. I mean, it's just fucking biblical. It is literally biblical. That's not <laughs> an exaggeration. Yeah. yeah. I also love as Smeagol falls that he's, even though he's falling to his death, he's yeah. happy. He's yeah. content. It's mm -hmm. like, this is how, if he's going to go, he's going to go holding his precious. You know? and, yeah. and then when he, when he hits the lava and then he knows he's going to die, his expression changes to not a look of pain. It's a look of like disappointment and betrayal. Like, like my my precious betrayed me. How how is this right. possible? And that's his last moment. This this sadness. Right. He he held it to the last. You know. Yes. <laughs> and then the black gates collapse and Mount Doom erupts. And the music here as the the, the fallen molten rocks take out the Nazgul and Frodo and Sam escape. The others thinking that he perished. And I know I've overused this word with regards to the score, but it's just sheer perfection. No, it is. And I, I just want to add that I keep looking at this film, watching it, hearing it, and just trying to imagine it without this score. And I don't know if it would work. I don't no. know if, if it would be the same film, which just shows you the power of a great score and how mm -hmm. it really elevates a film to a level beyond what you can get out of just performances and, and action and everything else that comes with a great production like this. Yeah. It's gone. It's done. Yes, Mr. Frodo. It's over now. 
see the shy. Around the Ohan River. From this point onwards, from that very first viewing in a packed cinema in December 2003 with a mesmerised audience, it, it moved me more than any other film has. Now, I know the multiple endings has been given so much flack over the years. Ah, fuck that shit. That's I don't mind them. No, <laughs> yeah. you, you don't wrap up 11 hours worth of storytelling. Exactly, as precisely. Yeah, yes. in, yeah, you don't wrap that up in any other way other than the way Jackson and Co. did here. In I order think to tie Peter... up... I think all Peter of these Jackson character has... arcs to dig together in a way that the audience deserved. Now, yeah, I know I some people didn't react well to the ending, but what did they want? Were they not invested in these characters? Was yeah. it the full bladder factor? <laughs> yeah. that's that's that, that was a, what I was going to say, that Peter Jackson says that if you're sitting in a theater after three hours waiting for this film to end, you, you're just desperate for a break. But I think watching these at home, you could take a... A pee break, you know, when you switch Blu-ray discs, and so I think that eliminates that, that that physical need. Or as I did, I watched this in uh, over four nights in sort of hour and change, you know, little chunks, little episodes, and you really just get to appreciate each moment that way. You don't feel yeah. uh, that you have to stop it and pause it and take breaks. Like you can just immerse yourself. And there actually are very good breaks about three times three three good points throughout the film where you could take a break and it almost feels like an episode is done and you can move on to the next one so it's a four hour and 20 minute film but i think there's 23 minutes of end credits in this special in this extended mm -hmm. edition so might that might be the record <laughs> for end credits in and any I, film. I, I do want to take this opportunity to address one of the big quote-unquote plot holes that people think they're clever by pointing out the, the eagles why don't they just give the ring to the eagles because the eagles hate us they don't like humans they don't like elves they don't like wizards they they like gandalf enough to save his life once or twice so they're barely willing to rescue frodo and sam like they're definitely not going to do an errand for the council of Aaron. so i, I just wanted to, to get that off my yeah. chest <laughs> yeah well, we mentioned the runtime, and in the extended edition of it, what are we with? Four hours and twenty-three minutes. Yeah. So that that is yeah. by far then the longest film we've ever covered on this podcast. Because I think the previous longest would have been, I think, the Two Towers, which is three hours forty-two, which I think is exactly the same runtime as Lawrence of Arabia, another film which we've covered, which is also you know epic film in terms of its length. Yeah, this is easily the longest film that we've ever covered. 
Yeah, I don't think you're going to exceed this unless you watch like an Andy Warhol movie, uh, you know, like Empire or something like that. Yeah, or, or like um, the War the Russian Peace. War and Peace. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, the I haven't seen the theatrical cut yet. Apparently, the Napoleon version that's coming to Apple TV eventually will be the four and a half hour version. So yeah. I, I might just wait for that version and not yeah. and skip the one that's in theaters. You know, the theatrical version already feels more than twice as long as the extended <laughs> edition. Yes. So I've heard. Yeah. So then we see the Hobbits and Gandalf reunited with Frodo in Rivendell. Then we're on to Minas Tirith for Aragorn's coronation. My friends, you bow to no one. Oh, oh God. Oh, man. Oh, this man. is, you talk about a scene that chokes, Oof. this is the one that chokes me up. I literally mm. just started, I gulped and, and I, I tried to hold back a tear because, and it's not a tear of, of sadness. It's a, it's a tear yeah. just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is a guy, this is the king looking down at these little hobbits yeah. and just elevating them above himself. Yeah. And it is a broad daylight composite shot of two different plates because, you know, the hobbit actors oh, were yeah. on one plate, the other actors were acting, you know, against a, a vacancy, and they managed to pull the feeling off from probably two separate days, maybe weeks apart from one another, with, you know, just yeah. essentially lit the same, but it doesn't lose any power from the actual practical realism, the practical need to have shoot, you know, two different sets of actors because of the um, height uh, discrepancy and what that oh, yeah. demanded. Yeah. And, and, and I think and the, and the pan out, you know, the beautiful wide pan out shot that with the mute, with the score, oh, just everything about it just. It works so and, well. And, yeah. And, and Vigo sings, doesn't he? Damn it. Yeah. It just it works. Yeah, and, so, and then he's, of course, reunited with Arwen. Yeah. And I think yeah. this is such an essential example of who Aragorn is, uh, who he is as a king, who he is as a man, what it says about masculinity. Like, the first thing he does as a king is openly weep, sing, bow to hobbits, and kiss the, the woman he loves. Like, th th those are the first things he does in front of his new kingdom. And, and I think it speaks to both the worldview of Tolkien and the, the performance of Vigo and Aragorn as a person. Yeah, but John, what does he do the following week? Raises taxes. <laughs> all, yeah. all of that destruction was caused. It's not going to pay for itself. They, they got, um, <laughs> well, now that the, the elves have a bed in Middle Earth, they can just farm some mithril or something. <laughs> he, he gives his best friend a no-show job, you know, all this sort of uh, loose yeah. corruption. So <laughs> they apparently filmed even more footage of showing what happened to the likes of Legolas and Gimli and Faramir and Eowyn but Jackson I think quite rightly left it out as much as it would have been nice to have seen at this point then we do kind of need to bring things to a close back at the Shire then with the Hobbits Sam plucks up the courage to go and talk to Rosie Cotton who we see he eventually marries now this scene of the silent exchange between the four Hobbits this for me was Tolkien's ultimate comment on World War One and the young men survived but would come back greatly changed and the fact that they often struggle to readjust a normal life and it's just so well done yeah and, yes, and i yeah. think that that, that was ptsd yeah. yeah 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 that that's why you know frodo has to go off into the gray havens like he's he's never the same um he's forever changed and he's remains distant from everyone who used to make him feel welcome and he can't explain it he can't express it and i think certainly in the 19 teens and 20s i'm sure it was seen as a character flaw from yeah. the people who who didn't want to think about the trauma of war whereas it was on the minds of tolkien and his peers for the rest of their lives and you know that's sort of what the whole scouring of the shire sequence is 
partially about, but I think it's handled very effectively in the film here. Yeah. Yeah. So many, so many veterans of war, especially World War II, would never talk about what they did or saw yeah. or experienced. It, it just was something that, you know, they would never even tell their grandchildren or own own children about those experiences. So I think that's kind of you're right. He, Frodo, has to kind of go someplace where he can heal and find peace finally. Yeah. And it's it's now some years later. Frodo's shoulder wound that he sustained on where, where the top four years earlier still pains him. And then Jackson, Walsh and Boyens felt that they didn't show here how unwell Frodo was. He then finishes his part of Bilbo's book and then we're on our way with a much older Bilbo to the Grey Havens. Ah, and phew, this whole sequence. I mean, it, it took me so long to be able to watch this without just being a mess. And I almost, I think, resented the ending of the film for how it just shattered me emotionally. But now, finally, I, I can cope with it. But still, it, it hits as hard as anything. Again, it's it, it's an appropriate ending, you know, because we've been in, locked in for so long. And this is the end of, you know, you're, you're actually saying goodbye to the viewing experience of this 11-hour saga. So it's completely appropriate. Yeah. Farewell, my brave hobbits. My work is now finished. Here at last, on the shores of the sea, comes the end of our fellowship. I will not say do not weep, for not all tears And I love we, we get another, I will not say do not weep, but not all tears are evil. Yeah. It is time for so like so one, it's okay to cry is what also what we're getting, but also that this intense emotion is okay to experience. And that is something that we need to hear in this, you know, profound goodbye. Yeah. And the exchange then between Frodo and the other hobbits, now, that was all shot in one day and they'd really geared themselves up emotionally. But when Jackson looked at the dailies, all of the shots were out of focus and unusable. So they had to reshoot it all. And then that smile that returns to Frodo as he boards the ship. Uh, uh, and again, Shaw's music. It, God yeah. damn it. It's just, it's too much. 
And Sam then returns to the Shire. Uh, we see Sean Astin's real-life daughter Ellie run out to meet him. Now, this was all shot in January of 2000, nearly four years before anyone would see it on screen. And we're done. And these credits with Annie Lennox singing Into the West. And if you've heard the audio commentary by Jackson, Walsh and Boyens, you'll know that the song was written about and dedicated to this young filmmaker, Cameron Duncan, who lost his battle with cancer during the making of the trilogy. And he was a good friend of theirs. And the song was played before the film ever came out at Cameron's funeral. And the song matched with that beautiful artwork, the meaning behind it, and all of those portraits of the characters by Alan. It's just perfect, and it just destroys me every time. Yeah, it's it's uh it's and the, and the ending, you know, I was, I'm always fascinated by final shots of films. You know, the very final shot is just Sam closing that circular door, and the camera just kind of comes to a stop and slowly fades out. And again, final character we see is Sam, uh, yeah. not Frodo. You know, no. it's uh, so there's some there's more story. If there was more story, it would it's Sam, right? And I think eventually he does go off to Great uh, the Havens, right? Is that right, John? Um, in the I don't think so. Not in the. It, it, there's additional materials, I believe, that talk about. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I yeah. I'm sorry, I, I can't remember which yeah. <laughs> which which habits go go eventually. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. So the film's actual budget has been debated as it was part, obviously, of this huge three-film project that was filmed unlike any other trilogy before it or since, really, with an estimated budget of around $300 million in total. So that's around $100 million per film if you average it out. And the third film, after the huge success of the first two, took a worldwide gross of a staggering $1.156 billion, giving the trilogy as a whole a combined global box office take of $3 billion. Now, its financial success was then met with this incredible Oscar haul of 11 Academy Awards, equal in that of 1959's Ben-Hur and 1997's Titanic, as well as the coveted Best Picture. It won Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, Editing, Art Direction, Set Decoration, Costume Design, Makeup, Original Score, Original Song, Sound Mixing, and Visual Effects. Let's discuss, guys, this, yeah. you know, unprecedented Academy Awards haul. I think it's it's a flaw of the Academy format in general that the first two movies in the trilogy barely won any awards but this one you know won a whole pile of them so it's clearly a reward for the entire trilogy right yeah the whole endeavor but that's not what the awards say so you know it's just such a an odd thing to you know <laughs> have a competition for art, but I'm glad that Peter Jackson and the whole team eventually uh, got recognized for the accomplishments, uh, you know, by, by the Academy itself. And, and certainly, you know, fan, fans of this film are, are, were already on board for that. Look, if Pacino hadn't already won Best Actor for Scent of a Woman, then we wouldn't have understood that there is such a thing as a Lifetime Achievement Award given for a single yeah, performance yeah. in a single movie along the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, Scorsese winning for The Departed, you know, it's, yeah, it was more yeah. for his work as as a his contributions for the previous three decades than it was for that film. So it's it's not uncommon. However, the yeah, people Green, hated Green Book. Green Book was still better than this movie in the end. <laughs> <laughs> real, real quick, I have to correct myself. Adam, you are right. Sam does go to the Undying Lands after yeah, think, after, after his, his wife, wife dies. Right? Dies. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Minus a million token points on my part. <laughs> it's just it's been too long, but I I remember yeah. him wanting to reunite with Frodo in the Undying yeah. Lands. Yeah. yeah. Now Jackson would of course go on to direct another Tolkien trilogy 
from 2012 to 2014 with the Hobbit trilogy, as it would become. Now, gents, do we want to say too much about that particular trilogy, or shall we save it for another time and go out on a high tonight? Save it for another time. Yeah, save yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, that's great. <laughs> so, gents, what are your closing thoughts on Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy and this epic years-long podcasting journey that we've been on? How have the films held up for you two decades on from the original release? Well, I sh I'll just say that after everyone says something that they want to say, the last words are for you, Sky. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, God. Talk about pressure. <laughs> well, no, I, I, it's, I, it's just, uh, yeah, two, 20 years. It's, it's really hard. It does feel like a handful of years ago that I, I was in the theater seeing this uh, for the first time and then the next year watching the, the, the extended edition for the first time. So it really doesn't feel like 20 years to me. But as you get older, time speeds up. So. I, you know, just speaking of getting older, I, I think as I grow older, my appreciation for these movies grows as my appreciation for the work of Tolkien grows. So the, the body of work that he created, the, the worlds that enrich these movies for me, it, it just, it, you know, like I said at the, at the top, just that love, you know, feeds into to, to each other. And I find revisiting these films rewarding. I find discussing it with you gentlemen, incredibly rewarding talking about it with, you know, people I know locally. Like, it's just it's just such an enriching experience to go back and visit these films, find myself enraptured by the performances, by the storytelling, by the action, the fantasy. It's just it's just such an experience that I'm, I'm glad to revisit as often as I can. Yeah, I, I think this makes me remember this the the stack of history we have in front of us here and that you know like you guys too i remember being there in the theaters when these showed up but hearing about the um you know their impending arrival and and me not necessarily being a reader of the books but knowing the gigantic draft that this has in history and literature there's a lot of people waiting for it so i mean it was seismic when it came out but now we get all these decades later to sort of reappraise the moment the the era in which it came out in i mean we, we've done a really good job over three episodes of this podcast extolling the praises of the movie but it's like now we get to look back at the actual day and date it came out and to see how different the movie market has changed uh, not just for this type of filmmaking with this vocabulary this grammar but overall you know like what kind of movies are made now and where they show up you know, I mean, we we we, na we name dropped the um, you know the Amazon series the last time we did this, and saying, well, this is essentially what you get now when you attempt to do something like this today, uh, with the tools at disposal, with the people who are making it, with the prevailing you know prevailing ethos of, of of the way films are made and what the influences are. But it's like this made me think of uh, the only competitor that Jackson had at the time was Lucas was getting back on the saddle and doing three Star Wars prequels. And, you know, it's amazing because this was a real horse race at the time. You know, uh, you also had Harry Potter coming out for the first time. Harry Potter just, yeah, Harry Potter started, but the thing is Harry Potter was still a brand new brand. Uh, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars had been around since time. Now, Harry Potter, don't get me wrong, I love it. It was successful. It was really well done. And the casting of Daniel Radcliffe and those, those three kids all together, I think, was one of the wisest moves in all of cinema in the last 25 or 30 years. Uh, but Harry Potter wasn't going to be the world, same world beater as perhaps a, a, you know, an adaptation of Lord of the Rings and what, the, you know, George Lucas getting back up in the saddle 
them doing Star Wars. So the thing is, it's like we had Phantom Menace came out in 99, Attack of the Clones was 2002. You know, he's still going punch for punch with Peter Jackson. These movies were coming out, and then in 2005, you know, Revenge of the Sith comes out. And, you know, we were supposed to look at these movies as equals. They were supposed to be you know, neck and neck, a, a sort of, you know, these, these, a nice gentle, gentlemanly competition between these two directors. You know, Jackson, who essentially was a guy who came up from the farm team doing these gross-out movies, was buffing his image and doing something incredibly respectful and amazing that you didn't know he had this kind of upside in him. And Lucas was looking to put the crown back on his head and take it back from guys who, you know, like Jim Cameron, whoever else came after him. And it's amazing how we don't look at the Star Wars films as anything these days. I mean, sure, there may be a minor appraisal, but this movie, you know, he made something that could have appeared back in the days of Charlton Heston. This could have been a Cecil B. DeMille movie. This could have been something made by William, William Wyler, Frank Capra. This is something that instead of just being a uh, pop icon or a pop uh, archive element of 2002, 2003, it winds up being something that stands in a century of filmmaking, that increases the filmmaking grammar, that adds something to the history and essentially changes the manner in which films are made, even if they're not made this movie, made, made this way anymore. And we can talk about The Hobbit all you want in future installments, we can do those things, but I feel like I'm okay with this not being attempted again or people not being able to get near here just simply because there is a magic and an alchemy we saw maybe the last time, but it's yeah. a real potent addition to fil feature filmmaking as we know it on Earth. Because I, I think this these films were made at the bleeding edge of technology when it was we were capable of creating Middle Earth on film, but still not far enough along where the ubiquity of smartphones and social media would make every filmmaker accessible everywhere in the world. So, you know, I think you guys discussed how being far off in New Zealand, 10,000 miles away from Hollywood, let Peter Jackson create these movies fairly independently. And it's so really important we, to mention, John, that yeah, the lack yeah. of interference, yeah. Yeah, so the combination of technology and, you know, this bubble that Peter Jackson was able to create in New Zealand was only probably feasible for like a five-year time span. So this is the only moment in film history where these films could have been made. And, you know, thank goodness that they were. Yeah, they were really insulated from the, you know, the paparazzi and the prying eyes of all the trades. You know, it was just happening off in some far-off place. And before anyone could interfere, it was done. Mm -hmm. Let me ask yeah. you two guys, because I asked Sky this before we went live on the microphones. Is this like the last 1990s movie? You're talking about that um, atmosphere of disobedience and independent filmmaking and a real sense of risk taking with a lot of money at stake. That was unfortunately, you know, marked by like Harvey and Bob Weinstein. But the thing is, you could look at this is this is like one of the last 19. This was made in the incubator of the 1990s, even though it was released in the 2000s. Is there anything to that, you think? Yeah, I would say, yeah, this this because this was all happening far ahead of its release date, I think, yeah, you could easily mm -hmm. argue that. Yeah, so probably this and the Matrix, maybe. Yeah. Or in that same spirit for sure. But but the Matrix as a film feels more a product of its time, whereas oh, this feels very timeless. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. I've tried long and hard to sort of sum up how I feel about these films in, in an adequate way that just doesn't sound like I'm just gushing uncontrollably. Back well, six years ago, I wrote uh, three individual pieces on each of the films for the for the website. I've, I've not gone back and read those pieces, so I, I couldn't tell you how they come across or how I sort of capped my, my sort of thoughts on the film, but they, 
they've certainly not changed if anything as i mentioned on previous episodes a few years back i had a discussion with a friend of mine about my concerns about how these films would hold up uh, given the fact that at that point i hadn't watched them for quite some time and we were in the sort of early stages of planning how we were going to tackle the lord of the rings trilogy on the podcast and whatever concerns i had about them holding up were just completely unfounded because these recent rewatches spread out over the course of two and a bit years you know I, i've enjoyed the films as much as I, I i've ever enjoyed them and in particular this third film which has been the film which i've actually had the, the most problems with and been the most sort of nitpicky about i've put aside all of those little niggles i had with same here Return of the yep. king and i have absolutely thoroughly been blown away by this third film and it's been no secret to anyone who knows me and knows that I, I put the first two films just on a very slightly higher pedestal than this third film, but it's evened itself out now. And it has solidified for me the fact that as much as George Lucas's original Star Wars trilogy, I think is influential in a way that no other series of films can be, I think this trilogy is perfect. Whereas I don't think the Star Wars trilogy is because the, the further tinkering has happened and I think the fact that Return of the Jedi falls down in certain parts, even though, as you would have heard on the episode we did, I still love that film. This trilogy, and I, by this point now, I have now been fortunate enough to be able to discuss my three favourite trilogies on this podcast. Richie, Neil and I discussed individually each of the Star Wars films. Adam, you, Richie and I did a huge episode on the Back of the Future trilogy and now yep. we've tackled these three films. Well, I thought you were going to say Twilight Sky. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm always going to have a special place in my heart for Star Wars and Indiana Jones because, you know, those are movies, you know, without those movies, I might not be here having this conversation with, with you gentlemen. But I think there's something very special about the fact that I fell back in love with these movies in my 30s, you know, with the help of like some of my friends who, you know, that I watch these movies with that adult me has a different attachment to Lord of the Rings than, than I do to Indiana Jones and Star Wars. And so in a way, it, it stands separate from the other movies that helped me fall in love with cinema in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this this film or, or these films, how many times have we said, oh, this just broke me down? You know, that mm. I teared up or or this destroyed me the, the feeling that you get from this film at the end in particular as much as i love star wars and indiana jones and any of those films they don't have that same emotional weight for me at least that i took away from it from the, and that's not a criticism of those films it's just that it just shows you what they were able to achieve with these films to make you care for these characters as much as as we do Mm-hmm. Yeah, I no, I think you've hit on something, Adam. Because I think when I when I look for a film to impact me, I need a film to draw out of me a strong emotional response, yeah, and, and a positive one in order for me to fall in love with that film. And more than any other film, these three films they elicit that response from me in a way that no other films do. And I think, without any real hesitation, I think for me this is the greatest trilogy of films. I've ever seen. I think they were made at a time and a place and in a situation where the financial situation, uh, where the relative lack of studio interference, although there was quite a bit of studio interference, which was sort of batted off particularly well by Barry Osborne and Marco Desky and the like. They did a tremendous job of keeping the studio at bay. 
Ultimately, it does feel like an independently made film, but with studio money. But then it's also the creative thing behind it, the fact that all of these incredibly passionate, talented people who hadn't been beaten down by the Hollywood system were able just to throw everything into these films. And I just don't think the situation will ever arise again where everything will be in place to create films on a level of quality that we've got here. And we're talking about 11 hours and 20 minutes of film that is nigh on perfect. And I just don't think we'll ever see it again. And I think that was proven in 2012 to 2014 when there was a completely different set of circumstances, yet you had the same people adapting Tolkien's work into three films. It just didn't work. It didn't work mm-hmm. as good as this did for a whole but different it, load of reasons. It seems even more far-fetched now thinking about who actually has access to the 300 million that it would take to hypothetically make something like this. The question is, what kind of hoop would you have to jump through? And then who is the person who would get the money if they could jump through those hoops? I don't think it augurs well for the same result you had back in 2003 when this came out. I don't think you can get the same results today just because the soil is just so salted a little bit. Mm. Mm. So, well, Adam, you said maybe the last word should fall to me then. I'll, I'll just... I'll just say, before we bring things to a close, I really want to say thank you to everyone who's listened to and enjoyed these episodes and given us such kind words of praise and said how much they've enjoyed them and how much they're looking forward to subsequent episodes. Because when we set out to tackle these films, we really wanted to do them justice. And I think by spacing them out as we have, we've also asked that our listeners be as patient as audiences were back in 2001 to 2003 with the theatrical releases of these films. But we we think that it was the best way to adequately pay tribute to these films. And we've had some amazing feedback from our listeners, from our friends, and from people directly involved in the making of these films. Executive producer Mark Odesky has given us some really nice humbling praise for those first two episodes. And we genuinely hope that this third episode meets everyone's expectations. It's It's been a lot of pressure, but I think... And this is the first of the three episodes where I've actually been okay i've been fine because the first two i was getting over covid on the first one and on the second one i hate the way i sound because i got over this horrendous throat infection i'm fine on this one i'm actually (laughs) you know i'm ailment free at last you're just missing a finger that's all yeah yeah which john bit (laughs) off but we won't talk about (laughs) and there we go guys we're done finally After well over two and a half years of planning this series of episodes, it's over. Should we just retire from podcasting now? No, we yeah. we gotta do we gotta do the mortal machines before we uh... <laughs> fucking mortal engines. <laughs> whatever it is, yeah, whatever the fuck it was called. Adam, <laughs> Bill, and John, you have been such tremendous co-hosts, and if it wasn't for the passion and expertise you've brought with you, then we just couldn't have been able to turn out episodes of the quality that uh, I hope we have. So, thank you, all three of you, so much for your tremendous effort. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. for yeah. yeah, thank you for inviting us on. It, it's I've said this before, but sometimes the, this type of opportunity is the best way to revisit a film trilogy like this, and to really do so in a way that you're re reevaluating it. You're re, you're you're trying to decide: does this hold up? Is it is it what I remember it to be? And for me, it's just been such a rewarding experience because. Not only does it hold up, but I think it is better. They're all better than I originally thought I would remember them to be. <laughs> I knew they were good, but somehow they just they have aged well over the over these two decades. I like I'm, wine. I'm such a Tolkien dork that I own and have read his translation of Beowulf and his <laughs> uh, his lecture notes on it. 
Um, and so to get the opportunity to talk about these movies and, and these stories with, with you gentlemen is such a privilege. So thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, but what those two guys said, this has been a real a real gift and a privilege. And, uh, you know, it's mostly just fun more than anything else. It's like the time to come on this talk show and uh, decompress good movies amongst adults is, uh, you know, that's the good kind of fun you want to do as an old man. I kind of want to go back and watch the first one again now. Is that, is that weird? <laughs> no, I, I do. Not well. start really it all do. over again. Yeah. So, guys, where can people find you on social media if they want to discuss film, television, comics, pop culture, or anything else within your fields of expertise? Well, I'm. Uh, I got a podcast of my own. It's called I Don't Get It. That uh, Twitter is uh, no at No and Bill Show. But personally, you'll find me on on frickin' Twitter all the time, doing bullshit, whatever the hell I do. <laughs> at William Scurry, I'm I'm, I'm memeing, I'm making jokes, I'm making goofy make ups, saying inappropriate things, doing all that kind of stuff. But I'm on all the social medias. You can find me on insta you can find me on blue sky you can find me on facebook i don't know why you would want to find me but if, if i'm easily available in all those places uh adam here i am on twitter or x or whatever it'll be called when this comes out <laughs> it's uh, at adam rakoff and yeah i'm that's my one social media presence so that's that's where you have to find me <laughs> john here i am at quasar sniffer on all the social medias I have uh, my own podcast called Popcorn Eschaton with Scott Thurow. That's on the Zebras in America podcast feed. We talk about religion and or leftism in movies. We've talked about everything from um, Andre Rublev to the 36 Chambers of Shaolin. So it's a good time. Before I sign off, a big thank you to one of our listeners in particular who has been, you know, with us every step of the way, looking forward to these episodes and, and just nagging me, you know, as to when the other one's going to be out. And Janine Ford, I, I know you've loved the first two episodes and you're a huge talking fan, a huge fan of these films. Um, I hope this third episode just lives up to your expectations and thank you for, for all your support. And the same goes out to every one of our listeners who have just been with us for this yeah, two and a bit year long podcasting journey. It has just been, yeah, great. And for all of those people that don't like Lord of the Rings, uh, <laughs> I can only apologize. <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, that's Sky with an E. You can find the rest of the Film 89 team at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook. Please check out the website, film89.co.uk. There are three fairly lengthy articles by myself on each of these films if you want a little bit more uh, as to my thoughts on them if i haven't given you enough over the last eight or so hours but please also leave us a positive review on apple Podcasts. that would lead that would mean so much to us but thank you all for your continued support and uh that's it guys it's over we're done <laughs> and you stay classy <laughs> <laughs>